Austin writes this bit about how she's basically like always naked when she's husking and like she's nigh naked I'm not, when she's husking. I'm not nude when I'm husking. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of a homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Karen Charm, perhaps known to X-Twitter as Karen X-Men fan, a cartoonist, artist, critic, whose online presence I've quite enjoyed, and I was keen to have them on the show they were very clear that they wanted to talk about Paige Guthrie, a character who I have clowned on a lot on this podcast. So I'm excited to get in deep with a Husk fan, more than skin deep, one might say. Karen, how are you doing today? Hi, Connor. I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Was, uh, this is very exciting. And uh, <laughs> I know when I initially was like, talk to me about Husk, I was not expecting to take me up on it and certainly not so soon. And I appreciate the kind words. It's very nice. Well, here's the thing. I want to get to everybody, at least everybody with one Zaladane's worth of appearances. And Gen X is a really beloved title. It was never my favorite, but so many people point to it as their introduction to the X-Men as the student class that they're really attached to. It ran for 75 issues, so obviously it had a pretty significant core following, even if it was never the flagship or selling like a flagship title, but it was up there. I mean, it was like Excalibur. It was one of those ones where it certainly had a loyal fan base that bought it. Husk, therefore, is a character I really got to know in the Austin run, which I think is why I've always had trouble taking her seriously. Yeah, like that's, I've, I, <laughs> that's unfortunate. But I remember, you know, at the time I was very excited. Well, she made the X-Men. That right, would have exactly. been exciting if you're a Husk fan. Yeah. Who knew it was going to really profoundly drive the character off a cliff, which it did. But maybe not the worst of it. Well, <laughs> that's the thing is there was another cliff below that we didn't I even know. anticipate. But rereading a lot of Gen X stuff, I mean, I had read it like here or there. I would grab it if it was like at the newsstand. Or I remember mm-hmm. the annual where they fight despair and he conjures up the ghosts of the Hellions. And as like, oh, yeah, yeah. a Claremont 80s nerd, I really enjoyed that. But otherwise, I read it pretty infrequently. I did eventually go back and like read it as a complete thing once it was over. And then I've been rereading for this show because my magnum opus, the 45 minute character file on Monet <laughs> required me to really, cause I'm I was sure. like, I gotta, I'm doing this chronologically. I really gotta actually read these fucking issues. I can't wing it on this one. And I remembered the way Husk was characterized in the nineties, which is very different, very different from how the character would later be characterized. And must be very frustrating to fans of the character from Generation X. It's funny, um, you know, I did have that feeling. It's like, oh, she was such a great character and then was forgotten. And um, I did a big uh, Husk reread a couple months ago. I think when I was first like, oh, Husk doesn't get respect. And I was like, oh, so, so I read a lot of stuff. Justice for Husk. I know, Husk right? <laughs> I read a lot of stuff I hadn't before. But then I just like in the past week, 
reread the highlights of all that and skimmed through some of the other stuff that is not so high of a light. And um, I was like, oh, she's kind of like always been in play almost consistently, like kind of as a background character, but she was like in like Messiah complex and like Mike Carey had around Claremont even like wrote her, like brought her back a couple of times. That's wild, isn't it? That Claremont writes her in Excalibur, but not the real, the weird right. miniseries that's just called Excalibur that's on Genosha after Morrison's run ends. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. the book that like retcons Zornito and all of that. But there's this weird scene where Paige is like Warren's arm candy at the gala for his launch of Mutant to Sans Frontières. Right. But that's the last time they're ever seen together. I think that then they break up off. Yeah, that's that's for the best. That's yeah, because I think whoever brought her back next, I guess it was Carrie, was just like, no, I don't want to right. deal with that. Before we dive all the way into Husk, that sounds vulgar. Let me take that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna leave that in, but I'm gonna say it again. Well, before we, uh, God, now I don't even know what to say. Um, before we, well, before we peel back all the layers of Paige Guthrie, a.k.a. Husk, I would love to hear about your origin story with the X-Men. What drew you to this franchise and these characters? You are Karen X-Men fan, which is a pretty clear sobriquet i do like the x-men quite a bit <laughs> you're also a very noted eternals fan and today the entertainment weekly covers drop that was fun by those i was a little like i was just like i want to save these pictures but they were like all they've done some like they're like uh, gifts yeah. yeah they're like moving so i just took a bunch of screenshots but they look good probably better than they do in the movie Probably. I just like looked longingly at Richard Madden's face for a few minutes yeah, and yeah. then moved on with my day. You're really the only Eternals fan I've ever met, which I love for you. Zoe. I guess Zoe does. Well, Zoe likes the new Eternals, but does Zoe like like classic Eternals stuff? Uh, maybe a little bit. Because like, yeah. people like Kieran's new book. I don't mean that. I just mean like I literally had never met apart from Cersei, who like if you read Bomber Jacket Avengers right, was like yeah, an yeah, Avenger yeah. in the 90s. I never have really thought about the Eternals in my life. Once they started casting actors I liked in the movie, I was like, well, shit, I got to pay attention. Yeah, not as long a Eternals fan as an X-Men fan, but I have kind of fallen hard for them in the past couple of years. It was like when they announced the movie, I had like knew about the Celestials and maybe had heard of Eternals before, but I was like, oh, this movie's coming out. I'm going to read these Jack Kirby comics. And I was like, oh my God, these are amazing. And I've just like latched on. Yeah. I always just think of them as like, so Jack Kirby has the fourth world with the new gods, which is like the best version of this concept, and mm -hmm. then has the inhumans, which is like the less good version of this concept. And then there's the Eternals who are kind of the same thing again. And somewhere in there, honestly, are Thor and the Asgardians, who are also like ancient alien chariots, of the gods kind of stuff. Yeah. The Eternals just never quite felt like they got a fair shake, even under Kirby. So yeah, I guess maybe now true. is the moment, you know, we'll see. I mean, the new goes. series is really good. And I think I had the advantage of not really reading any of the other stuff. Like I've known about Kirby for as long as I've like Marvel, but 
didn't really dig in and it was kind of like oh this is great and maybe if i had like gone if i had like read the book before i saw the movie <laughs> then it would have been different but i i don't i want to read the fourth world i stuff, was gonna say you like, should read fourth world because i think you would like it if you like yeah. the eternals to me it's like that's kirby like nailing that chariots of the gods thing yeah which obviously he was very interested in playing yeah. with but I digress. Let's go back to Karen X-Men fans origin <laughs> story and how Karen became Karen X-Men fan. Sure, sure, sure. So as a youth, I got into X-Men because of the Marvel trading cards, like the first series. Mm-hmm. I kind of just loved all of the Marvel stuff and I was like absorbing like everything. But I gravitated to the X-Men, which at the time there was like the Outback X-Men and then X-Factor. and That's the best era. I know. So it's like I really gravitated to the X-Factor outfits and like Cyclops and Archangel, Marvel Girl. It was like this rules. And then so I was collecting the cards and then slowly over the years, this is like early 90s. Wasn't really reading the comics. The TV show was out, but I think because I was re- I was like reading the backs of these cards, I was like very aware of the continuity mm-hmm. liberties with the TV show. So I just have distinct memories as like being a kid on the playground. People were talking about the TV show, and it's like you know, it's not actually that's not actually how it went <laughs> in the comic. But I was the same way. I was in so yeah, yeah. So I did that like collecting every single toy pretty much like as it came out got pride of the x-men that was my like x-men cartoon show pride of the x-men vhs like love if you uh are also pride of the x-men fan listeners anthony Oliveira and i did a commentary track on the patreon that i think is pretty funny pride of the x-men is also i mean i had it on vhs that was key vital to me i was pantomiming dazzler finger guns for years i just love the like crunchy quality of their vocals that's like burned into my brain like the audio quality is like not good <laughs> like vhs at the time and yeah like, the studio i'm sure was not the biggest budget in the world actually it's a pretty um it's like toy animation oh yeah that's right that's the other thing it was like so much it's beautiful it's way prettier than, than the what's... cartoon that became yeah, a hit. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's like part of what led me into the X-Men. I had the trading cards. I don't think I was maybe too young to have any interest in getting the comics. I have like a couple scattered random issues. I have like an one of the later Alan Davis issues of Excalibur where like Sarise is making out with Nightcrawler. And it's just like, uh, I just have that one and like Warpies. And it's like, I don't know, but it looks good. I'm a big Cerise fan. I think I'll probably get to Cerise sometime next year. Yeah, she rules. Yeah, I mean, well, it's like at a certain point... I will have hit all of the heaviest hitters. And at that point, if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to listen to a podcast episode about Cerise because guess what, baby? There's a lot of characters in this fucking universe. It's true. But I think I had a friend who had a copy of Wizard. So it went down that rabbit hole, but it had the Mm -hmm. Joe Mad cover with all the X-Men. So I was like, oh, and it really like lit up that part of my brain that was like into like the... Japanese style animation of like Pride of the X-Men, the video games. Like I loved watching my brother play like Mega Man and just like mm-hmm. trying to like copy the boss screen and the instruction booklets. So that sort of like tipped me into getting the comics. And I think what I remember as being my first comic was like X-Men 316, which was Phalanx Covenant. Yeah. Which introduces the Generation X kids. And that's like Husk is in that and like it rules. It starts off with that great cold open with like M 
with like, Monet and the, the, yeah, the governess. And governess. Yeah. So I, I got that issue and then Age of Apocalypse happened and I like followed that sporadically, but it was kind of like that was sort of my entryway. And as soon as that was over, I was like fully collecting for like years until Morrison. And then it was like, this is too good an ending. I can't read after this. And by that time, I was like <laughs> graduating high school. So, yeah, it turned out you were right. So, you know. Because it was really, I mean, Mike Carey aside, and I love the Zeb Wells New Mutants, I always give yeah. those caveats, but it's a pretty dire period post-Morrison, pre-Hickman, honestly. Yeah. Like, I'm not. There are individual books I think are very good in that mm-hmm. big stretch of time for about 15 years, but. Yeah, kind of like move, I mean, you know, it's a common story, move away, but uh, I kind of, in the past, like, 10 years or so as like would like check up on like x-men as like yeah. an old x yeah you always keep tabs like what are these characters up to you and like know? i started listening to jay and miles when it started and mm-hmm. i was like and that was around um the bendis era and i was like what's happening there's time travel that's interesting right. like it came in with age of apocalypse so i like that kind of alternate reality stuff and then they interviewed tom taylor when he was launching x-men red and i was like gene's back okay because at the height of my like X-Men fandom was when the first movie came out and like the second movie was like cemented like I love Jean Grey forever. Magneto's great. Mm-hmm. It was just like the whole. Well, Famke Janssen is great yes. in those yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the age gap casting between her and James Marsden does not work at all, but her performance is great. They just needed to cast someone her age as Cyclops. I'm sure that it's not something I noticed at all. Logan even talks about it in the movie. He's like, oh, your boy toy. I forget like what he says, but it sets up the love triangle in such a weird way because suddenly Logan and Jean is the only logical solution because her relationship with Scott Mm -hmm. is clearly frivolous. It just starts that movie situation on such a weird foot. But I mean, she's great. She gives a great performance. It's a great Jean. It's unfortunate that the third movie doesn't like that yeah i mean i think she's the best thing in it but Mm -hmm. it doesn't really give the plot the i've come around to have a different opinion of it like i can appreciate it but it definitely when it came out and like seeing it in theaters was the most heartbreaking (laughs) i think it is one of the best adaptations of the dark phoenix story that exists in like alternate media. It's just the rest of the movies surrounding it is really bad. And the reason I think it's a good adaptation of the Phoenix story, like obviously I don't like that it gets rid of all of the science fiction elements because that's annoying, but the dynamic that it gets between her and Xavier, I think is really smart and is exactly what it should be and is shied away from in most of the adaptations of that story. So I appreciated that part, but the rest of that movie is... Not very good, although, as I said last week in the Jamie Madrox episode, casting Eric Dane as a man who can make a million copies of himself was a very diverting thought, at least for me as a viewer. So I enjoyed that. My favorite actually bit about The Last Stand, this is completely off topic, but (laughs) Shari Agdashlu plays Kavita Rao in that, which first Mm. of all, she's Iranian and Kavita Rao is Indian, so that's not ideal. But that aside... Par for the course with the Fox casting, honestly. That's also just Hollywood generally, right? Mm -hmm. But um, she told the press that she was playing Cecilia Reyes. Like, it's very clear that that script was being rewritten up to the very last fucking minute. And they just like subbed out one doctor name for the other, because I don't think her name is ever like said Mm. in a scene that she's in on camera. (laughs) So she just 
But I remember the controversy because it was like they cast a non-black actress as Cecilia Reyes, which of course would then rear its ugly head again for, yeah, the New Mutants movie where she got a real bad hand generally. But it was funny in retrospect because that was the initial controversy. Then it turned out she was playing an entirely different character who was actually of a different race than the actress. So The Last Stand is a a fascinating relic and we can talk (laughs) about it no further. Let's just move on with our lives. What you said about Age of Apocalypse is interesting because I would say that the best, and this is like conventional wisdom, really, the best Age of Apocalypse mini is Gen Next, Mm -hmm. the Generation X mini, in which Paige plays a very interesting role and is characterized very differently from the way that she was at least initially characterized in 616. Yeah, and if I'm being honest, that's probably what like cemented me as like a huge Husk fan. Like it's right. clearly I mean, that a makes different, sense. but it's like it's like a vision of like what this character can be, and like nobody ever and it's never happened ball. ever. Right? Yeah. But yeah, I love it. That like final scene with her just being abandoned is just like burned yeah. into my brain forever. It's just, like it's brilliant. The lobdill of it all is like. You know, we'll talk about it, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, I said recently in the listener discord, I was like, here's the thing about comics. If you are going to forbid yourself from enjoying historical work by guys who turn out to be creeps or jerks or whatever, you're going to miss a lot of historical work because this is a nerd niche field that has sometimes attracted personalities that are prone to that kind of behavior. People who felt like misfits, felt like nerds, and then became famous and then used their power in ways that were inappropriate. So that's not to say I don't think people should be conscientious or whatever, but I really just do think at a certain point you have to say to yourself, okay, this creator is not someone I approve of, but this is a comic book from 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Be aware of the context, maybe like don't support if they have some new creator owned project. But I think that that's that's how I look at it anyway. I mean, it's work for hire. They did like a million years ago. So, you know, it's true. And uh, yeah, that's a weird thing. But yeah, when coming back into X-Men as like an adult, a very different adult than I was like growing up, it's like Mm -hmm. coming to terms with like, oh, this like person who I know is just like done bad things terrible things like other writers have done arguably worse things and it's like oh this person like wrote my like the map of my brain to a Mm -hmm. a certain extent which is uh well I was a really big Warren Ellis fan Mm. and you know I'm extremely disappointed in both his behavior and how he has handled the fallout of his behavior yeah I know that apparently he's now finally talking to those women but it took what a year and his next project getting canceled, you know, so that's yeah. disappointing from someone who you found artistically inspiring someone whose work meant something to you when you were young. It's just always going to be disappointing. And Scott Lobdell is disappointing in a similar way. John Byrne is disappointing. I yeah. find his politics really disappointing and the Claremont Byrne stuff is still very formative for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I love X-Men The Hidden Years, which is all burned. I hate the Storm arc, which is bad, to be clear. But the Candy Southern content Oh, yeah, is that's right. Primo. That makes sense. So, you know, 
Am I going to tell people not to read X-Men The Hidden Years when it's like a full third of all the plots Candy Southern's ever been allowed to have a role in? No, I'm not going to do that. You know, just know that John Byrne says things that are really fucking fucked up sometimes. Right. Everybody has to set their own comfort level. But Mm -hmm. I do think that like, realistically, unfortunately, I mean, Buffy and Angel were everything to me growing up too. You know, there's a lot of times when these men are going to disappoint you. Yeah. And it's really it sucks an industry (laughs) that, uh, you know, fosters and breeds that. Yeah. Kind of mentality that kind of uh, I'm hopeful that's changing. Yeah. But certainly it did for a very long time, especially in that 90s Bob Harris era, which apparently continued into D.C., which, you know, is not my purview. But until just recently, I don't know. I can't really talk about that because I don't know. Anyway, so. You were a Gen X fan. You were a Husk fan. An unnecessary qualification. I was really into Gen X, but I never really collected it at the time. Mm -hmm. I was like uncanny X-Men and then whatever else I could add on. And I would like get some Gen X stuff. But I think by the time I was like going to be collecting it, Bacalo was like gone. So I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, I can't abide by what this looks like. So I just didn't. Yeah. Bacolo doesn't come back until much later. So it's kind of like, and I think by that point, he was only a, a year or two away from joining Uncanny. So I really enjoyed the Terry Dodson issues, but you know, that's just, I love that kind of like lush, slightly cheesecakey style, uh, admittedly. In my whole X Men origin story, I've since like gone through and like reread everything. Or like read everything for the first time, like mm-hmm. all the things I missed. And like, it was kind of fun to like loop back to like, this is where I stopped reading and now right. I'm all caught up. But yeah, going through the Dotson stuff, that's definitely the highlight because the Hama period is not really my cup of tea, but you know, the art is nice to look at and uh, their costumes are cool. So yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Hama got drafted to fix right. that book. So it wasn't like he- You know who he had no interest in? Miss Paige Guthrie. So she was. Gone. She gets really shuffled off pretty immediately. Isn't that when she and Chamber like break up and she starts dating a flat scan? They had broken up a little bit before. They had had like a falling out while Lobdell was still on. Right, but then yeah. it was like, yeah, Hama was like, oh, I don't know. We'll play. Actually, I think that stuff is uh, Jay Ferber. That may be Jay Ferber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think Husk is just like hanging around in the background. And then she's like, oh, I got to go because Ma is sick. Right. And they even introduced Gaia who like has pink hair later, but when she's introduced, she looks almost identical to Husk. So it's like, <laughs> there are already too many blonde women on this team yeah. for the artist to make indecipherable from each other. You don't need. The human boyfriend is definitely Jay Ferber now that I'm thinking yeah, about yeah, it yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's after Adrienne Ron. opens the school right. to the human kids. So mm-hmm. it have to be because Adrienne's a Jay Ferber development. Yeah. And I like that stuff pretty well. I do too. I think honestly that the back fourth or whatever of that book is quite good. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff after Adrienne sort of forces them to hide mm-hmm. is pretty good. I think that Sink's death is done really well, although I'm very glad that he's back. Yeah. But it does end a little abruptly. I mean, there's an arc that makes sense, but... Like, clearly the writing was on the wall, but it still Mm -hmm. feels a little bit like, huh. But to go way back, way, 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 way back, Husk is an interesting character because she's really retconned in, 
in a way mm-hmm. that is interesting because you see the Guthrie siblings in the 80s occasionally mm-hmm. when Sam visits home. But they're all just these little cherubs running around. <laughs> yeah, and it's like not clear who's who and they're inconsistent. Their hair colors change all right. the time. What's funny to me is seeing that like Jay slash Josh is like the first one who really gets like a name and then yeah. he's the youngest later almost. So that's the thing is he's supposed to be the oldest after Sam. And it's a whole thing about how like he's taking care of the farm now or whatever. But then they retcon it. So Paige is the Mm -hmm. oldest after Sam in X-Force, in the Young Hunt. Right. (laughs) And and then in Phalanx Covenant, except then there's a moment where like in AOA, Sam refers to Lizzie as his big sister, but that's probably a joke because she has the power to grow. Love you, Amazon. (laughs) I know, Amazon's great. There's also though a reference at one point, I forgot what issue it is, but I think it's in Phalanx Covenant to Lizzie being older than Paige. So it's like, it's really just a mess. And Lizzie has still not manifested her mutant power in our regular yeah. timeline. So, you know I what? I liked your, uh, when you were talking about that, was that with uh, Kendra James or? That was with Zoe. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would make sense. Guthrie talk. Yes, we were talking Sam. I do think there's stuff you could do with that character, but unfortunately, yeah, they established Josh as a mutant also, and then they established Melody as a mutant. And Melody is just like completely out of left field. Claremont just like adds a Guthrie in the 21st century. You can like go back because there's a brunette girl in some of those panels, and you're like, I guess that's Melody, right? right. She had never been named. Mm-hmm. Doesn't like even Jeb get powers? Like eye powers? Remember, he has like eye lasers or something. I just, there's a lot. Oh, yeah. In uh, the Austin, it's hard to tell who's who in the. It's a rough moment for the Guthrie clan in general, but also just, (laughs) I mean, it's been pointed out by lots of people that Lucinda Guthrie changes her hair color in every appearance that she's ever had. No consistencies to that character at all. She usually wears a plaid or like a checkered shirt. You're like, that's Ma. It's like Moira and her hat. Except Moira's hat is new, isn't it? I know. I feel like she didn't wear that hat until Hawksbox, but now. When Hawksbox, like the uh, promo images started coming out, everybody was like, that's Moira. And it's like, why is it Moira? It's like, because she's wearing the hat. And it's like, she's never worn a hat. She's before. never worn a hat before. We knew. We knew, the though. I, it's just interesting because that hat has truly become iconic. I think about Moira's hat frequently i wonder why she doesn't wear a hat in her nose space i feel like oh, that sounds really vulgar too i wonder why she doesn't wear a hat you know in the present i feel like maybe she'll wear a spooky hat in inferno. we're gonna find out why in inferno yeah i mean jonathan hickman is gonna take us away actually that's as good a time as any to just briefly comment on the news that oh, dropped yeah. yesterday as we're recording that Jonathan Hickman is leaving the X office, but remaining at Marvel. There was a whole lot of Sturm und Drang about this yesterday on X Twitter. It's emotional. I get it. I love him. (laughs) I've not (laughs) met him. I love his work. And I am forever going to be grateful for what he did to this franchise that I love that had been in the fucking trash for so long. But I actually think it's a good thing in the long run. 
for listeners, if you didn't read the interview in Entertainment Weekly, what he explains is that his plan for Krakoa was a three-year, three-act plan. And that during the COVID pandemic, he basically asked everyone, all right, are you ready to pivot into act two? And they were all like, not really yet. Like, I feel like we're still digging into all of this stuff that this new premise has put together and et cetera, et cetera. And so as it's gone on, it became clear to him that it just didn't make sense, given how successful this relaunch has been to rush to the end of his initial intended plot in three years, because we're already two years in. So he's going to move on to another project at Marvel yet to be discussed. My theory is a Marvel magic Doctor Strange kind of thing, because no one has ever quite managed to make that corner of the Marvel Universe work. That's true. And that big Strange and Wanda movie is coming out next year. I saw somebody mention Spider-Man and I was like, I can't even they imagine. They just announced what, the new creative right, team on Spider-Man. Right, that's the thing. They're doing the yeah. whole beyond. And the, so I don't, I don't know. literally don't know. It calls back to when the Hickman rumors started surfacing in the public, or at least when I caught wind of them, I was like kind of tying into my Eternals thing. It's like, it's either the Eternals or the X-Men. And I don't think it's going to be the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing. So yeah, it's a bummer because ideally this writer that I greatly respect would be on the one franchise I particularly care about forever. But if we're going to get a decade of Krakoa stories because this has been one of the most successful relaunches ever. I mean, Hickman compared it audaciously to Giant Size X-Men number one in 1975. And here's the thing. I don't think he's wrong. Right. I think we've barely scratched the surface of this new status quo, of this new setting. So what he's doing is he's doing the Inferno story, which to me looks like it's probably maybe a version of what was supposed to close act one in the three act Mm. plan. And then he's going to go do something else. A lot of people are like really freaked out about this, but he said that he's helped plan the next several years of X-Men storylines, his quote, and that they've been working on the transition for six months. So it's not a random thing. This is a tight knit one-of-a-kind office in Big Two Comics that he has built. He assembled an incredible team. All of those people are still there, as far as we know. We have been told there are more exciting creators joining the room. They're going to do a weekly, probably, event series. I can't imagine it's going to be like a long, ongoing, because weekly is impossible. And outside of 52, (laughs) I'm not sure it's ever really worked. But they're going to do a new event series that's going to refocus the line. I imagine we're going to see a lot of relaunches coming out Mm -hmm. of Inferno, shakeups. I'm excited. I think that the best is yet to come. And I also think, I mean, the thing that they kept saying in the interview was his last X-Men story for now. They said that like three different times. Yeah, I do. It's going to like dip in. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine that it doesn't appeal to Marvel and to everyone in the X office to potentially have him come in to do an event miniseries every couple of years. You know what I mean? And if they start moving on the plot trajectory that he laid out, which I don't think they're throwing it away. I think everybody, him included, saw the potential that was here and didn't want to rush it. Mm-hmm. Whenever we get to the phalanx and Rasputin spilling out of Zorn's head or whatever, I bet he's going to come back, you know? So I'm not stressed about it. It's sad. I have said this and I think it will continue to be true. I think he will forever be one of the three creators who revolutionized the X-Men after Lee Kirby's original creation. And that's Chris Claremont, Grant Morrison, and now Jonathan Hickman. That will never go away. It's been an incredible two years. 
but I have a ton of faith in this creative team. And I think he does too. Mm -hmm. He seems really excited about what's to come for them and for himself. So I think it's a good thing. That's my official hot take. If you didn't follow everything unfolding on Twitter yesterday, I will say this is yet again evidence that despite the fact that I am friendly with or work with several people in the X office, they're all very good at not telling me things I'm not supposed to know because I had no idea this was happening and was speculating just a few weeks sure, ago about what been, Hickman's uh, next book would be after Inferno. It's so like it's not happening. Yeah. And I'm not that good an actor. Like I try. <laughs> okay. I'm a decent actor. I'm a bad liar. So if I knew this, you would know. In any case. Yeah. I'm looking for, you know, I just look forward to being surprised. That's like, I just want things to happen that I can't see coming, which, you know, hopefully they keep doing. Yeah. As long as most of this talent is sticking around, like it is a real murderer's row talent in that office. I think I said on Twitter, it's like the day that uh, Pepe Larraz announces that he's leaving for some other thing. That's when I'll cry. But that'll be a real fucking bust. Yes. I hope that doesn't. <laughs> happen presuming they don't have somebody else amazing lined up well right i mean yeah there's plenty of brilliant artists but i think that pepe thing is they want to keep us hungry and waiting so they're not going to tell us but we'll find out soon enough well here's the thing i think solicit culture is evil because now you have everybody saying the hickman era is over everything's going to go to shit yada like all of these catastrophizing people and we haven't even read inferno yet right like the first issue is not even out yet Hickman X-Men literally isn't over. So like maybe fucking relax. I don't, I, I just find, and Hickman talked about this in his newsletter when he oh, announced yeah, he his creator own project. He's like, solicits suck. He doesn't even want people to see covers before they come mm-hmm. out. Like, and I get that because this is the only art form that's like this, particularly. Like even a film trailer is not, you can't keep anything a secret anymore. Mm-hmm. because you have to solicit it three months in advance you know uh, so but anyway anyway all that being said i just want to assure the listenership this is not the end of krakoa to the contrary everybody's saying the reason he's leaving is because they like krakoa and they want to keep going rather than rush to mm-hmm. fall of x or whatever the third act was going to be so i'm excited to hang out in this zone for a long time i cannot wait for inferno and I think that this team, I mean, Al Ewing, Jerry Duggan, Teeny Howard, Vita Ayala, Leo Williams, Cy Spurrier, Zeb Wells. More to come. There has never been a better time to be an X-Men fan. I still believe that. And I think that Jonathan Hickman believes it too. Yeah. And as the great Emily Wrights Good tweeted, it's like, we're X-Men fans. No matter what the quality is like, we're still going to be reading. Yeah, so- we're still going to fucking read it because we all read Chuck Austin. <laughs> we're going to be talking about Chuck Austin, you know, Larry Hama, Scott Lubdell, Warren Ellis, Brian Wood today, you know, read it all. Yeah, I I, I feel bad lumping Larry Hama in there because I think his yeah, sorry. stuff it's is pretty good. Stuff. No, I get yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's just it's just he's a Gen great X person, not, but yeah. his Gen X, he didn't have the passion. And- he didn't know. But you know what? If I read that Wolverine stuff, I probably because he like pulls in so much stuff like that, like rat with the smiley face on it. Dirt mm-hmm, now, name like Chimera and like all that weird stuff from the Wolverine that gets dragged in immediately. And it's like, if this meant something to me, maybe it would be cool. But it's, uh... it was also just cool to have an Asian person writing Wolverine. Yeah. like very weird Asian adventures, yeah. finally, <laughs> because it brought a quality to it that I think was important versus what had come before in Madripoor. 
Well, I'd love to talk a bit about Husk now, about what you love about Husk, about why she is such a favorite of yours. Take it away. Let me know. What do you think? All right. What's the hot goss? <laughs> so like I said before, like being really introduced to her. Well, um, I had the Gen X preview book like that they collector's mm-hmm. edition. I think it was called that like they put out before the series started. And um, it's just like reading that. I was like, wow, this is like the coolest thing ever. Of course, I don't think most of the stuff that's talked about in this book ever actually happened, which is kind of what the Scott Lobdell special, like no yeah. long-term planning. Remember the Ascani timeline? Where- oh my God. <laughs> Still out there. Remember the Ascani sun? Still out there, I, I guess. Do. Something. Yeah, but I'm just like, you know, there's a lot of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. Remember when they time-traveled back in time, then in the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix? Yes, I do. To, like, because, Victorian uh, days? John Paul Leon art. Rest yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. He's, he's one of the best. But anyway, being introduced to Husk in AOA was like this person rules. She's like doing this stuff with Vincente, breaking into the core and mm-hmm. power is really cool. She's got this like pathos to her. You see her. She's the last one standing and then left to die in this horrible suicide mission by Colossus. By her mentor. Yeah. Like, yeah. Very, very sad. And then when it picks up in the 616, that's like after X-Men Prime. And mm-hmm. like she's like totally devastated by the legacy virus. And I yes. was like, wow, this is like, so that scene is like so great between her and Chamber. And I was like, I really like empathize and like feel where this character is coming from. I like kept tabs maybe on like Gen X, but I was mostly reading X-Men. And then she joined the X-Men and I was right. like, this rules. But I was also of an age where I wasn't really like totally discerning like the quality of it, like what was going on Mm -hmm. or like interrogating it that deeply. But it was kind of like I was definitely like losing track of the focus. And like also as like the Morrison one was wrapping up, I was like ready to pack up and head out. The sequence you mentioned about the legacy virus is interesting because one of my first, like outside of dipping in and out of Gen X occasionally as it was coming out, one of my first distinct memories of Husk is in the Austin X-Men when (laughs) she informs Nurse Annie that mutants can't get HIV. Why did he write that? Like what? There's so many weird things. So first of all, the reason is because Angel is is about to develop his secondary mutation of healing blood and they need to like not have to worry about AIDS, I guess. But it's an insane thing. And she's just also so right. dismissive. Right, like, yeah, didn't you know? He's like, Maybe oh, you no. would if you weren't such a like mutant phobe. Like, yeah, like any mutants can't get AIDS. But she, when she was so affected by the legacy virus storyline, yeah. it's a particularly odd beat. It's also just an odd fucking beat in general. I think about that scene all the time. I think about Annie Gazakanian more than anybody really ought to because I find the whole psychology of Chuck Austin writing his Armenian wife into the X-Men run he was doing and identifying with her comatose patient who she falls in love with is a really fascinating thing. Like, that's just wild. And I would love, Chuck, if you're listening, I would love to have you on the pod for an episode about Annie Gazakanian if you 
ever would like to do that. We could talk about Squid Boy. I'm open-minded about this, but I think Nurasani would really be primo. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, but so it's just one of those things where that's kind of my issue is that the first time I really spent time with the character long-term was in that Austin run where she yeah. is truly insufferable. I also was a big fan of Betsy and Warren's relationship in the 90s. And so the whole concept of Betsy's dead, because at the time, Betsy's dead. The way they handled that is like, come to think of it, it's like the exact same thing they did with Scott and Emma not long after that. It was like she appeared in a vision and she said, go for it, stud. So now I'm going to date you. <laughs> I mean, except at least in Morrison, it was like Jean's great self-sacrifice at the end of right. time amid the apocalypse. But didn't Austin write like the seat, like the next issue where they're like on the grave site making out? Like, I feel like that's where. Well, they make out at the end of Morrison True. on the grave, which is iconic, frankly. Emma's in that <laughs> chic fur hat. <laughs> Love it. Love that like Ushanka moment for her, whatever it is. Personally, I think making out with Jean Grey's husband on her fresh grave is iconic. Don't come at me, Jean fans. It's funny. It's bold, let's say. It's like murdering a pony so that you can trick a teenage girl into killing your Hellfire Club rival. Like, it's a bold move, and I appreciate a bold stance. I also like when Jean ate all the broccoli people. That was bold, you know? Yeah. Like, I like when characters take big swings. So, but Husk... Not someone who takes a lot of big swings. No. Part of why I like her. Well, except that she took a big swing at a billionaire who was 20 years older than her. And, yeah, you know, I mean... So... I'm exaggerating. It's not 20 years, but it's bad. And the thing that is interesting is that the characters know it's bad. Warren knows it's bad and says it's bad. He's like, I shouldn't date you. Like, I'm attracted to you and I have feelings for you, but you're like 18 years old. Yeah. And he can't say how old he is because they're never allowed <laughs> to do that with the 05, but he's clearly supposed to be at least 30. Yeah, and it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, sure, a young woman would, you know, logically have feelings for like a hot, hunky yeah. like, guy with like a money. gorgeous and, billionaire. Yeah, just, why like, not? Sensitive. He's got beautiful wings. Like why? Why not? But Warren, you don't <sighs> you don't yeah. do it. It's a no. I mean, also, there's this very weird quality to it because one of Paige's defining things in the 90s that I now have remembered because I went back is that she doesn't want a man to take care of her. That's like mm -hmm. something she's very firm about. She doesn't want to depend on a man Absolutely. for income or for support because she sees how difficult her mother's life has been since her father died in the mining accident. Yeah. So when Chamber yeah, goes, they have that whole huge yeah, thing. she has the the plot that Sam has like seven different times, which is I'm bringing my love interest home to meet everybody at the farm. Sam's usually goes well. Uh, hers goes Jono is like atrociously bad because Jono is just such a fucking prick. <laughs> that, yeah, he's I mean, so self-absorbed. Yeah, miserable. He's like, I can't give you the life that you deserve, so I'm gonna leave because I can never give you. Stop trying to make me your Stop dad. Stop trying to make me your dad, girl. And she's like, I don't want my dad. What are you projecting onto me, you fucking asshole? Like, I don't want a relationship where a man is responsible for me. I don't want that kind of domesticity. I've seen what it's done to my mother and I don't want it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a widow 
or like whatever. Like, I don't want that. Yeah. I want someone who's fun, who like I have a good time with. Yeah. So fuck you, actually. And it's like from the beginning, Paige wants to like own the world. She wants to be like the best yeah, X-Men she's the in the world. She wants to lead Gen X, yeah. even though she's not good at it, which yeah. I which find I, very charming. It's, it's a, and that's like going back, like what I, you know, I, I relate to Paige being like, this goody two shoes who like is a try hard essentially, but then like has like so much ambition and you know how much of that is white privilege. We'll never know, but it's just like, I'm going to own the world. I'm the best there is at all this. And it's like, I'm going to be the star. But then as you go along, you're kind of like, Oh, maybe it's like not quite as simple as that. And it's uh, you sort of like get lost along the way as in your like mid to late twenties. And you're just like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that the white privilege point is interesting because Husk, like Sam, her brother, kind of brings in a different dynamic power wise that you don't usually get, which is the class dynamic Mm -hmm. of them being from poverty. While, yes, she is the white girl on the team and the only one, which is rare for a superhero team. Monet is the one with all the money and Jubilee is the one who's already been an X-Man. So mm-hmm. Paige has this absolute inferiority complex that's really interesting. We see her early on trying to kill her Kentucky accent because yeah. she wants yeah. to be taken seriously. She's a big overachiever in both training and in her academics because Emma actually does teach them things unlike <laughs> Charles. The breaking point, I guess, that we see is when Everett is possessed or infected, rather, by M-Plate. And Paige is like, I'm going to be a leader. I'm Mm going to solve the problem. And then she is completely out of her depth. And it's Jubilee who actually has the idea of Paige. If you fight him, your form is malleable, yada, yada. He'll have trouble adapting. She follows the direction, though. Like, she's not the kind of character who will be like, no, I'm supposed to leave. Like, there isn't... Right, she has, like, high ambitions for herself, but she's not, like, she's still a team player. She's not, like... She's not arrogant. Yeah, yeah. She does exactly what Jubilee suggested, and she almost gets herself killed. Like, she works really hard yeah. to fight Everett, and eventually she passes out. I mean, she it's working. Jubilee's plan is working, but she can't sustain it for long enough, and that's when Monet, mm-hmm. actually the twins, don't worry about it, <laughs> shows up and, you know, actually solves the problem because she has knowledge of M-Plate that the rest of them don't have. That's not fair. If we're deciding, mm-hmm. like, who has the best plan? His sister, who knows what his deal is, has the best plan. Yeah, and that's the thing about that early Gen X, like, the Lobdell run. It's, like, it's kind of meandering, but he has such a solid sense of who everybody is and just, like, reading it all in one go it's just like oh i just like love this direction the team gels together so well and it's just like just the adventures they go on are so bizarre like the uh cassidy keep stuff wild a lot of it is just fucking wild everything that ever happens (laughs) with black tom and gen x is fully crazy and m plate period is just an insane character in a way that is fun but is like what is yeah. this is our this is our arch nemesis this character now i guess it's not any more outlandish than the new mutants fighting the shadow king it's just so over the top 90s like rob zombie album cover that <laughs> i think it just comes across uh-huh. kind of wilder 
And I love how they make it. So like, it makes sense. He's the villain because he likes eating young mutants. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's his main target. So of course he'd go after the kids and not like anyone yeah. else. But uh, what you were talking about with the sink uh, and uh jubilee plan it's like you see that reflect even with when they're trying to hunt penance mm-hmm. like when she gets dropped on the ground and she's going around with very banshee on, yeah and she's just like i don't know there's no way we can catch him at all and he's just like look at all these clues you're missing you need to like slow down actually like, pay attention page perhaps <laughs> she's, she's like, just like oh, right fuck she, you're she's right. like what do you mean <laughs> Oh, there are clues. I didn't notice the clues. Hold on. I will look for clues. That's the thing is when she's redirected, she mm-hmm. will listen. It's just. Um, I'm going to be really candid about why I always did not particularly like this character, and it's that I think her power is fucking gross and it's hard for me to get past it. So if you're not familiar listeners with Paige, when her powers first manifest in the Stasis X-Force, she's just sort of like vaguely a shapeshifter and we don't really know what's up with her yet. At one point, she turns into a bird. And it's never, <laughs> they never do it again. Nope. It's fascinating. You How, can't husk into a bird. What? That doesn't make any fucking sense. But it was before they established At that least when thing. she becomes a tree, that's like, okay, a tree. Yeah, she's like made of wood. Like so the thing. <laughs> so here's the thing. Husk has one of the least sensical scientifically mutant powers that's ever been invented so in X-Men comic. It's also just really fucking disgusting to me personally. Her power is that her skin is like always molting and she can just rip off a layer of it and reveal she's like a seven layer bar as a person so like there's the flesh and then under it'll be like wood and then under that will be glass and then under that will be diamond and she just rips off layers until she gets a layer that's useful for the given situation and as it went on she became able to choose what she was going to husk into which was a big power up she ends up husking into diamond a lot and this is actually Mm -hmm. before emma has a diamond form And she's like, Emma is the one who's like encouraging her to turn into diamonds. That's kind of a fun bit (laughs) retroactively. But eventually, like by the time of Jason Aaron, she can basically husk into just fucking anything. And that comes after Carrie writes her in Necrotia in Legacy and has Proteus possess her. And much Mm -hmm. like Sink using other people's powers or Emma in Bobby's body in the early 90s in the arc that leads into Gen X, Proteus instinctively uses her powers much more effectively than she ever did and husks into lava and like she becomes magma but you know unproblematic that's like the like age of apocalypse husk that i was like like she was turning into like like poisonous gas or something that can hurt colossus and Mm -hmm. kitty pride at the same time it's like what is that yeah and in aoa she could also husk like individual parts of her body she had much more control but the other thing about aoa and this is why i think a lot of people who came in with aoa are husk fans is that in AOA, Sam is evil. And so is their sister Lizzie. And Paige is the one who said, no, I refuse to work for Apocalypse and became a rebel. Mm-hmm. So there's like that sort of Star Wars-y rebel alliance kind of Princess Leia feeling to her in AOA. Yeah, I can see that. And she's a much more like rough and tumble character. It's interesting. But yeah, so I just, I don't know if it's because I had like, kind of bad eczema as a teenager but like something about 
like skin power. Like I've talked about a knoll. <laughs> he stresses me out because I just think about him like shedding his lizard skin and it freaks sure. me out. I'm just like not a fan of these skin shedding related powers. Husk is constantly just ripping her own skin off on panel. Which always looks great in my uh, It freaks me out. Especially when sometimes it's like, she'll like be ripping a tit off and there's no nipple on it, but you can see like the tit skin. I find that strange. I, I mean, yeah, I assume she does have nipples and that's is, just a, uh, you know. Kind of weird bit of it. Well, it's like rain, right? Like rain, rain. never has nipples in wolf form and she should mm-hmm. have like six of them or whatever. So yeah, I guess lately they've kind of moved. There was like a bit in the Austin, like I keep, I have such complicated feelings about dominant species, that storyline. Cause like on the one hand, it's like you a lot of conflicted feelings about dominant species. It's like a lot of husk, man, but bad. then, and she does like stuff. And I think the art is nice. And she like husks into cool forms like that, like super durable, like dark Teflon or whatever she does. But then it's like, the stuff with Warren just gets like so <sighs> gross. He passes out on top of her and his yeah. healing blood like he just oozes bl- into yeah. her body and heals her. And then they decide they're in love. Yeah, that's bad. I like that design that one that Kia Asamiya did yeah, yeah, where yeah, like yeah. she has the red trench coat. Like it's a cool mm-hmm. design. It like feels informed by the Gen X aesthetic with like the red and gold colors. But man, man, that arc is just not good. No. Austin writes this bit about how she's basically like always naked when she's husking and like she's nigh naked. I'm not when she's husking. Say, <laughs> I'm not nude when I'm husking. Warren like sneaks a peek and that's like when they're falling in love. And she's like, ooh. But then a couple issues later, she like husks and her clothes are still on. It's like Chuck. Yeah, so it's like Make up your mind. Did she just like pull all the skin tatters up through the collar of her shirt? Like what happened here? Which she does a lot more now, which is like, that's fine. Sometimes she'll just like reach, like her clothes are fine and she just like reaches in and suddenly she's just ripping skin through the clothes. Like it's phased. There's no reason why she can't have clothes underneath when she's like husking. So it's like, whatever. Yes, there is. She (laughs) shouldn't have clothes under. She turned into a bird. Okay, but only the one time. She only turned into the one time and never has. Honestly, honestly, if they were going to give her a secondary mutation, like when Aaron did give her that secondary mutation, and the secondary mutation was just, she's crazy. Um, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> the secondary mutation you could have given her would be to husk into like, shape-shifting that's more extreme, like to husk into animal forms or whatever. I don't think that would be smart because again, like I think her power is already broad spectrum enough that you don't need to gild the lily, but Mm -hmm. that would have been better than every time she husks, her brain chemistry gets all fucked up. Cause like, what? I'm just like, because of like all the Avengers stuff, I'm just like, I think everything that Jason Aaron has ever written is just like not canon. It's all just like, <laughs> so I'm choosing to just go with all that stuff. And Wolverine and the X-Men was just like a wild Jason Aaron uh, ride through the. Briar He's written patch. some stuff I really do like. I like no, his I Thor, yeah. you know, but I, ju- I just read the Doctor Strange and like, that's fun. The second that the 1 million BC Avengers showed up, that's before Homo sapiens existed. <laughs> 
uh, and he has a mutant on the team that doesn't it looks like Jean Grey. I yeah, I know. And like, first of all, that's eating Celine's lunch because Celine is supposed to be the first mutant and she's only 17,000. So one million two thousand is a little excessive, in my yeah. opinion. So I say it's just not the 616. It can... <laughs> my approach, frankly, since I was a child is that if it's not edited in the X-Men office, it's not canon. Yeah. Which has served me well. <laughs> you know so and he's he did write wolverine stuff that i didn't dislike i've just never been a solo wolverine mm-hmm. fan yeah, particularly yeah, me neither going back it's just i don't know i've always heard like your reaction to Hus powers being gross is like not uncommon i mean that's how jubilee feels in the first issue of generation x but i've just never gotten that i think i just like see it as kind of like papery dry so it's just like ripping through like paper I don't know but it's not it's her flesh and she tears it off I don't know I just find it really fucking I, weird yeah I wish like here's the thing I would like it more if we leaned into the comedy of it and it was like Paige is having lunch with Jubilee and her face falls into her soup or whatever and she's like oh god damn it my gold arm face fell into my soup that's Wolverine and the X-Men <laughs> Well, that's the thing is it felt like the monkey's paw because that's what I always said. I was like, make Paige's power funny. And then in Wolverine in the accident, it was like, Paige's power is so wacky. Yeah. She's crazy. And the toad is eating her out with his crazy tongue. And I'm like, this is the worst. I don't like this at all. But, you know. <laughs> Moment of silence. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know what else. She says, literally. I know. I, I know. I just read all that stuff today. <laughs> I can't believe I ever let you put your tongue on me. Oh, why? It's bad. Jason, you have to answer for this. I just much like Chuck Austin, Jason, Aaron, you are welcome to come on the podcast. We can talk about God. I don't even know who would we talk about. Shark Girl, maybe I like Shark Girl. I like Shark Girl. We can talk about Shark Girl. Jason, Aaron, if you want to come on and talk about Shark Girl, let me know. <laughs> In the meanwhile. Uh, <laughs> so. I don't know. I like I like her powers. I think they're really cool. And I love how they are cool. I'm just a wuss. She's got to like study to like use them. Like she's always like, especially early on, she's like reading like physics books and like looking up like chemical compounds. She's mm-hmm. like, Can I figure out how to turn into this? And uh, it's almost like the Green Lantern ring in a way. It's like if I can imagine it, I can like yeah. turn into this. And in that way, it's like sinks power a little bit, which is mm-hmm. that it's like it's really only the limits of your creativity, of your imagination. And that's why I love there's a in the scene later on in the Fairbur run when like she's training with Tom Corsi and he's like, nobody's been training you people. So it's yeah, like boot camp. And then just like, us, cut, <laughs> like getting her to like, and she turns into glass. It's like, you've never done that before. Well done Paige. Yeah. Cause Tom helped train the new mutants back yeah. in the day. And he's just like, so are you guys actually like practicing? Cause your powers don't seem any better than they were when we sent you to Massachusetts. Yeah. I think that She's just very of the time. Like, Skin also has a gross power. Chamber, her love interest, also has, like, a gross power, but it's pretty, you know? But, Mm -hmm. like, it exploded his face. Like, it was just a very 90s moment where, like, everybody's power had to be super traumatic. And I think that that is why Gen X appealed to a lot of people, because it has that hot topic new mutants kind of vibe to it sometimes you know what i mean like it's very it on for trend. Me. <laughs> yeah it, it was the 90s i mean that yeah. was kind of the vibe they're like the emo kid version absolutely of the new and as an emo kid that spoke to me <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I think now is a good time for us to do the Cerebro character file, or for me to do, you can just sit tight, obviously. I'm not going to make you participate. It's time for me to do the Cerebro character file on Paige Guthrie, a.k.a. Huss. We will go through her incomplete publication history from the appearances that might be her in the 80s through <laughs> x Wars in the Young Hunt and Phalanx Covenant, then into Gen X, and then into all of the shit show mess that happened after Gen X. So sit tight. We will be right back for more with Karen Charm. We will talk about their favorite Husk storylines, and then we will answer your questions. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Paige Elizabeth Guthrie, better known by the codename Husk, is the younger sister of new mutant cannonball Sam Guthrie. One of the first Guthrie siblings to be really distinguished from the group, Paige became the most prominent one besides Sam when she was tapped as a recruit for the 90s student class called Generation X. Headstrong and overachieving, Paige longs to be an X-Man and a leader, but isn't necessarily cut out for the life she craves. Significant developments under writers Chuck Austin and Jason Aaron would write the character into tricky positions, and her place in the franchise has been somewhat shaky ever since. While unnamed Guthrie sisters had appeared before that might have been Paige, Paige makes her real debut in X-Force 32, when Sam brings his girlfriend Tabby Smith, aka Boom Boom, home to Kentucky with him for a visit. There they become swept up in The Young Hunt, a new game played by the murderous thrill-seeking mutants called The Upstarts. The challenge? To eliminate all surviving new mutants and Hellions. Paige is spying on Sam and Tabby when they're kidnapped by upstart Sienna Blaze, and though she has time to react, she's too afraid to try defending them with her new mutant powers. These are vague at this point. We know she has a shape-shifting ability of some sort. X-Force arrives to help, and Cable refuses to let Paige accompany them on the rescue mission. Paige follows after them anyway, and uses her vague power to hide from the Games Master, leader of the upstarts. X-Force and their allies, the New Warriors, are defeated, but Paige is able to best the Games Master in a battle of intellect. She convinces him that a more satisfying game would be to train his own students and then pit them against Xavier's and Cable's. After this adventure, Paige is determined to become a superhero herself, but Cable doesn't feel he has the time or opportunity to train her properly. That's fine by Paige. She coolly informs him she didn't want to work with him anyway. She wants to be trained by Charles Xavier. She thinks Sam and X-Force leaving Xavier is the dumbest thing they ever did, and she intends to be an X-Man. She's then kidnapped by the techno-organic aliens called the Phalanx as part of the franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant. Held captive alongside fellow mutant teenagers Monet Sancroix, Clarice Ferguson, a.k.a. Blink, and a boy called Angelo, a.k.a. Skin, Paige assures the others that the X-Men will come to their rescue. Soon it becomes clear that Paige has been infected with the techno-organic virus as her skin is turning into machinery. But when the X-Men do indeed show up, after a fashion in an emergency strike team consisting of Banshee, Emma Frost, Jubilee, another phalanx target named Everett Thomas, a.k.a. Sink, and the X-Men's prisoner, Sabretooth, Sabretooth is able to save Paige by ripping her skin off, revealing the true nature of her mutant power. She husks layers of epidermis, revealing layers of apparently random forms beneath. Though Paige begs her not to, Blink sacrifices her life to save the others. Paige and the surviving teens become a new class of Xavier students called Generation X, trained by Banshee and Emma at the new branch of Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, at the Massachusetts Academy where Emma once trained the ill-fated Hellions. In this new ongoing title, initially written by Scott Lobdell and drawn by Chris Bocciolo, Paige takes the codename Husk and intends to prove herself worthy of leading Gen X. But while she's very intelligent, she's not always the most tactically minded, and tends to act before thinking. When Paige learns of the legacy virus, a new and invariably fatal autoimmune disease affecting only mutants, she copes with her depression by getting drunk alone at the Academy. She's met by her classmate Jono Starsmore, aka Chamber, a somber bad boy she has a crush on. 
Paige, tipsy, kisses him through the scarf for bandages or whatever it is that he wears over the psionic fire where his jaw should be. Don't worry about it. Anyway, he has a moment of horny panic and telekinetically explodes the girl's dorm. He doesn't tell anyone about Paige's role in the explosion, and Paige is grateful for his discretion. But he misunderstands, thinking she's embarrassed by the idea of anyone knowing she has feelings for him. In the 1995 Uncanny X-Men Annual by Terry Cavanaugh, Brian Hitch, and Bob McCloud, Paige and Sam return to Kentucky to talk some sense into their sister, Joelle, who never manifested mutant powers and has since become involved in a reactionary group called Humanity's Last Stand. They help Joelle realize the group is bigoted and violent, and she departs with her siblings. When Paige's Gen X classmate Sink gets infected by their archenemy, the Marrow Vampire M-Plate, he briefly becomes a crazed Marrow Vampire himself. It's Jubilee who comes up with the plan that can fend him off, which is embarrassing to Paige because she still aspires to leadership. Still, Paige is essential to the plan. Sink has difficulty copying her variable powers, so if she continually husks while fighting him, he'll be off guard. Eventually she gets too exhausted, though, and passes out. The team is rescued by the arrival of Monet, M-Plate's sister, who is able to cure Sink. After the onslaught crisis, don't worry about it, Paige, who lost her father in a mining accident when she was young, comforts Franklin Richards about the apparent deaths of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman. She then brings Jono home with her to Kentucky for Thanksgiving. Jono's wildly insecure and pretty horrible the whole trip, saying it's a bad idea for him to visit, a bad idea for them to date, and a bad idea for Paige to like him at all because he can't give her a comfortable family life. Paige, frustrated, protests that she doesn't want a marriage like the one her parents had, but Jono departs in a huff. Around this time, we get a flashback of Paige's mutant power manifestation. After learning about Sam's mutation and his role with the new mutants, a young Paige had prayed for powers and tested every power idea she could think of. Eventually, she cried out to God that if she didn't become a mutant soon, she'd tear right out of her own skin. And then, she did. Back in the present, when Gen X is put in an illusory fantasy world by Glorian, the shaper of dreams, don't worry about it, Paige and Jono are put in a scenario where Jono, whose face and body are whole in this reality, is a rock star, and Paige is his pampered girlfriend. Florian realizes quickly that this isn't what she really wants. Paige has no interest in being taken care of by a man. His experiment ended, Florian takes the kids to Los Angeles, where they evade the sentinels of Operation Zero Tolerance, before eventually making their way back to Massachusetts at the end of that event. This is around when Scott Lobdell left the book, with new writer Larry Hama taking over. We learn that Paige keeps a diary when it's stolen by the daughter of the local chief of police, endangering Gen X's secrets. After the girl sees Gen X in action fighting M-Plate, though, she agrees not to tell anyone about what these obvious heroes are up to. Not long after this, Paige departs the team for a while in Generation X-44, because Ma Guthrie is very ill, and the family needs Paige and Sam to return home for a bit. Paige asks Jono not to leave the academy until she comes back, because they still need to sort out their feelings, and he agrees. Paige's mother Lucinda recovers quickly, thankfully, and Paige returns to the book four issues later under new writer Jay Ferber. She wants to finally begin a real relationship with Jono, but he's hesitant. Paige is pissed and gets a new haircut. When the Massachusetts Academy is forced to open to human students by its new co-headmistress, Emma's eviler sister, Adrienne Frost, one of the new kids, a handsome guy named Tristan Braun, discovers that Gen X are mutants. He has a crush on Paige and threatens to expose Gen X unless she goes on a date with him. Paige, as it turns out, didn't need the pressure. She likes Tristan, too, and agrees to give it a try. Jono is pissed and insists he'll kill Tristan if the boy hurts Paige. He then starts mouthing off to her on missions where she's assigned as field leader, ignoring her authority. Paige and Tristan's date finally happens at the school dance, which is attacked by M-Plate. This experience brings them closer together, and they begin formally dating. Paige starts ignoring Jono entirely. Not long after this, under new writers Brian Wood and Warren Ellis, Adrienne's evil plans come to a head and she sets bombs across the school. Sink is killed saving other students, and Paige and her teammates are devastated. Tristan leaves the school alongside the other human students, ending his burgeoning relationship with Paige. Throwing herself into her training to cope with her grief, Paige also begins investigating mutant crimes on the internet. 
She doesn't want to be a superhero anymore after what happened to Sink, and intends to reshape Gen X as a group that helps children in need. In the penultimate issue of Generation X, Paige is home alone at the Academy when she encounters the ghost of a girl who died there as an abused student decades earlier, before Emma bought the building. Paige, compassionate as ever, helps bring the ghost and her surviving sister, now an old woman, some peace and closure. In the following issue, after Paige and her classmates have discovered Emma murdered Adrienne in cold blood, they decide to abandon the school. Jono is offered a promotion to the X-Men, and the others decide to go their separate ways. Paige and Jono share an emotional goodbye, but promise each other this isn't the end for them. Paige ends Generation X, deciding to travel up to Canada and aid an environmental group in protesting a corporate oil drilling operation. This is the end of the book with issue 75. In Joe Casey's brief run on Uncanny X-Men, in which Jono now features, he begins an affair with the British human pop star Sugar Kane, which upsets Paige. They're reunited when the X-Men visit Banshee in Paris, where, still in a deep depression after the murder of Moira McTaggart, he has started an international mutant police force called the X-Corps. Paige, Jubilee, and Monet have joined up, specifically to keep an eye on their former teacher, as he seems to be slipping. They work with Jono, but things between him and Paige are a bit chilly. After Mystique infiltrates the X-Corps and launches terrorist attacks in Paris, the organization disbands and Paige returns to the States, moving into the Xavier Mansion in Westchester for the first time. There she becomes a core cast member of the new Uncanny X-Men run by Chuck Austin, in which she develops a crush on Warren Worthington III, the original X-Man Angel. As always, ages are kept vague here, but it's clear that while Paige is now an adult, there's a significant age gap between them of at least 10 years, and Warren is hesitant to reciprocate her feelings because of it. Stacey X, a newer member of the team added in the Casey run, is also attracted to Warren and torments Paige when she perceives her as a rival. After Stacey humiliates Paige by using her pheromone control power to read her lust for Warren and inform the team, Paige is even more determined to become an X-Man for real. If Stacey can do it, she reasons, surely so can she. She assists the team in battling Maximus Lobo, do not worry about it, but is nearly killed by, uh, werewolf mutants. Anyway, Warren uses his new secondary mutation of healing blood to save her life, and the experience of watching Paige nearly die in his arms helps him get over the death of his ex-lover Betsy Braddock. Deciding to move forward, he agrees to start dating Paige, and the X-Men formally instate her as a member of the team. Shortly thereafter, Stacey X abruptly quits and vanishes from the book. Things look stellar for Paige, but then a lot hits her at once. Jono returns to the mansion, creating tension between him, Paige, and Warren, and then their former classmates Jubilee and Skin are two of the mutants crucified on the front lawn by the Church of Humanity. Warren's healing blood is able to save Jubilee, but it's too late for Skin, who dies. Jubilee decides to stick around the mansion and help the X-Men, where she and Paige process the loss of their friend Angelo and struggle to secure him a proper burial. Due to bigotry from humans who own plots in the cemetery, he unfortunately ends up exhumed and cremated. Jono, meanwhile, decides to go undercover and join the Weapon X program. Don't worry about it, but it's basically the last word on the Paige-Jono romance. Paige affirmatively chooses Warren, but a few weeks later he breaks up with her without explanation. This leads into the infamous arc, She Lies with Angels, where the X-Men travel to Kentucky to help resolve a conflict involving Paige's younger brother, Jay. Paige overhears Warren explaining himself to Lucinda. His feelings for Paige have grown so strong that he's become afraid of what will happen to him if she's killed in battle. And that, not their age difference, is actually why he's broken things off. Paige barges in and demands that he treat her like an adult, and the two of them reach a deeper understanding. Then they fly into the sky and fuck in midair, dropping their clothing to their friends below, as Lucinda turns away, scandalized. Woof. Around this time, the X-Men teams reorganize and Warren is sent to Genosha to keep an eye on the work Professor Xavier is doing in the rebuilding efforts after Cassandra Nova's genocide there. In the odd book Excalibur Volume 3 by Chris Claremont and Aaron Lepresti, Paige plans to accompany Warren to Genosha, but they stop first in Zanzibar for a gala launching the local chapter of Mutantes Sans Frontières, an international relief group Warren is funding with directorial help from Hank McCoy. The gala is attacked by terrorists and Xavier's new Genosian allies help save the day. 
After the decimation, in which all but about 200 mutants worldwide are depowered, Paige is one of the few to retain her mutant gifts. Her sister Melody is decimated and sent back to Kentucky, while her brothers Sam and Jay retain their powers. Paige returns to the Xavier Institute in Uncanny X-Men 469 by Chris Claremont and Billy Tan, where it becomes clear she and Warren have broken up off-panel. Paige spends most of her time at the school interfacing with concerned parents, doing her best to help reassure them. She and her brother Sam help the refugees who settled at the school, and she chafes at the restrictions placed on her by the Office of National Emergency directed by Valerie Cooper. After the ONE agents confiscate her stuff, Sam helps her do some hacking into their computers in retaliation. Paige and Sam are then left heartbroken when their brother Jay is killed in an attack on the school by the Purifiers. After the funeral, held at Xavier's, they return to Kentucky with Lucinda to be with their family. For some years after that, Paige is a background character. She turns up in the San Francisco era to help the X-Men, and clearly still has feelings for Warren. Eventually, she moves to the new mutant haven established by Cyclops and Emma Frost called Utopia. When the wicked Selene begins resurrecting dead mutants worldwide in the franchise-wide event Necrotia, planning to use their energies to ascend to godhood, evil versions of Sink and Skin are among her servants. In Mike Carey's tie-in for the event in X-Men Legacy, Paige accompanies a strike team to Muir Island after the precognitive student Blindfold has a foreboding vision. There, the team is surprised by a revived Proteus, an Omega-level reality-warping villain who possesses bodies. Paige briefly winds up possessed by Proteus, who uses her powers in impressive ways we've never seen before. He manages to husk into a semi-solid lava form, and displays lava-blasting powers while in that state. She'll later learn how to use this form on her own, now that she understands how Proteus did it. After Proteus is defeated, the X-Men return to Utopia. During the schism in 2011, Paige and Sam side with Wolverine and decide to leave Utopia behind. Sam has noticed that Paige is acting strangely lately. Her skin shedding is becoming more frequent and abrupt, with flakes of skin falling off all the time, and her personality has become similarly mercurial. Still, she's hired to be on faculty at Wolverine and Kitty Pride's new Jean Grey School for Higher Learning on the old Xavier School grounds, and becomes a cast member in the new title Wolverine and the X-Men by Jason Aaron and, initially, her co-creator Chris Bocciolo. At the Jean Grey School, Paige begins teaching Intro to Mutant Literature and History of Mutant Art to younger students, but the children don't seem to respect her as a teacher, and she's worried she isn't cut out for it. Her mental health continues to deteriorate, and she blows off Sam when he confronts her about it. During Avengers vs. X-Men, when the faculty is told they're allowed to make their own choices about who to support, Paige uncharacteristically defers to Sam. He elects to abstain, and they both stay behind at the school. Sam does eventually join the fight on Utopia, but Paige does not accompany him. She continues to teach, but it's clear she's bitten off more than she can chew. Her powers are still going wild, as are her mood swings, and she strikes up an unlikely and odd friendship with Mortimer Toynbee, a.k.a. The Toad, a former villain who once kidnapped Generation X, but is now serving as the Jean Grey School's janitor. Toad is obviously smitten with Paige, and even steals the full-body husks of skin she sometimes leaves behind now that her power is in overdrive. It seems like Paige is starting to return his feelings, and she enjoys exploring with him after husking into a toad-like form herself. Eventually, Paige's strange behavior draws concern from headmistress Kitty Pride, who tells Paige she needs to get psychiatric help before she can resume teaching. Offended, Paige quits on the spot. She tells Toad she's leaving, but won't let him go with her. Still, she promises she will return for him. When we next see Paige, she's become the librarian at the new Hellfire Academy. Do not worry about it. And she's even crazier! She tells Toad and Quentin Quire when they come to the Academy that she plans to see the X-Men burn in hell. Toad tries to talk sense into her, but she won't listen. She expresses disgust with him and cruelly says she regrets the sexual relationship between them that apparently developed off-panel. During the final battle between the X-Men and the Hellfire Academy, Toad and Paige fight, and Toad rips layer after layer of mutated skin off the now fully insane husk until he finds the normal Paige Guthrie beneath. This Paige doesn't remember the last several months or anything about her relationship with Toad. Observation at the Jean Grey School uncovers that Paige's psychosis has been the result of a secondary mutation. When she husks, she now reforms her brain chemistry in addition to her skin. 
trading with Hank McCoy to alleviate this side effect. She tells Toad that while she can't remember what they had, and she's a bit confused, she'd like to get to know him again. She invites him out to coffee, but he stands her up and disappears back to Hellfire, too self-loathing to pursue happiness with her. As the series concludes, a now-recovered Paige is appointed guidance counselor rather than being reinstated to teaching faculty. There's a brief interlude here where Paige pops up in Spider-Man Deadpool by Robbie Thompson and Chris Bocciolo, where she's presented as working part-time for S.H.I.E.L.D. This never comes up again, so don't worry about it. Paige next appears in Generation X Volume 2 by Christina Strain and Amal Karpina in her new capacity as guidance counselor at the Jean Grey School. We learn she's pursuing a PhD, presumably in psychology, and she meets with student Roxy Washington, codenamed Bling, to talk about Roxy's self-esteem issues due to her diamond skin and her overwhelming desire to become an X-Man. Paige can relate, and her counseling helps Roxy cope with some of her issues. As the series continues, Paige teams up with Jubilee, Jono, and their new students to help free Monet from the evil influence of M-Plate. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Paige is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. In House of X, she's chosen as one of the few X-Men entrusted with the suicide mission to destroy the Sentinel Mother Mold. The team dies in battle, but become the first mutants to be publicly resurrected on Krakoa by the power of the mutant circuit called the Five, instantly becoming folk heroes to the Krakoan people. Since then, Paige has been in the background in this new era. She briefly assists Kanon's team of fallen angels in the miniseries by that title, but otherwise is only pumped up for cameos. What form she'll take next is an open question, but if she's still acting as a counselor for troubled teens, she might want to talk to some of them about the Shadow King. Just a thought. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope that the blooming onion that is Paige Guthrie has fascinated you as much as her power freaks me out. Uh, Karen... (laughs) How are you doing? Are you more freaked out thinking about it as a Bloomin' Onion or is that helpful? Yes, actually, that didn't help at all. I, it's just like very Cronenberg movie. I'm like, there are some Cronenberg sure, movies sure. I fucking love, but I'm also just like body horror. It freaks me out. It just does. And like, that's the point of it. Right. So I guess I'm not that crazy. I guess if be... they like did it in a movie, I, maybe it would right, like me, Imagine but... Husk in live action. It would be distressing. It would be it would be unpleasant. Now, maybe that's a reason to do it. If you, you know, <laughs> want to like lean into how fucking gross this is. If that ever happened, if Husk is on a movie someday, I'll be glad. I'm just imagining Jubilee being just like, oh, my God, that's so gross. I hate that. Don't leave she- that there. <laughs> the skin, the skin can't be here. You have to take it with you when you leave. That's actually... There's a wild moment in Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men where someone is talking to Husk and... That's what I thought of when she was... Like, it's just it's a, a like, shed skin complete with outfit that she left sitting at the table. And nobody noticed that happened. No. And then when she's like, oh, sorry, I'll get rid of that. Toad's like, I'll take it. I want the skin. And then he takes the skin and does disgusting things to it. Presumably he has like a little tea party with it. Yeah bad um extremely extremely bad not my cuppa i'll say um <laughs> but that brings to mind because talking about jubilee i was like oh man i'm so excited you're going to talk to christina strain who happens to be the person who wrote one of my favorite hus stories which is like the redemption of yeah like the toad kind of fixed bullshit right yeah and it's just like okay we have to agree that that all happened which is like not my philosophy but it's the marvel way so you know (laughs) um but then like managed to like redeem it and like make her work and i think 
it's the first time a woman has ever written that character. I believe I that's correct. Like we're, we're talking about Generation X Volume 2. Yes, by Christina Strain and Amal Carpena in 2017. Which is a fun book. I've recommended it previously. I think it's a, I mean, you know, I, I can't fucking stand Quentin Quire, but otherwise uh, it's, a, Same. it's a quality read. I think it was the Bling episode where I suggested it because it's one of the only times Bling has had sort of a, a front and, and center. And that's like my role. favorite scenes in that i mean that's that's kind of like what huss does in that because she's become the guidance counselor right and she understands to some extent roxy's discomfort about her physical mutation because roxy's mutation is similar to like forms that huss can take on when she husks the thing is like husk usually looks like a normal white lady so it's not mm-hmm. really like she can't quite really but what shows that it's like growth and that she's not actually that bad a counselor or a therapist is that she doesn't pretend that mm-hmm. she understands she just tries to sympathize and it helps roxy i mean she does seem helped by the sessions what do you yeah. like most about that story for husk it just seemed like kind of the way i was talking about her before like she had like overreaching ambition and then sort of gets lost along the way it felt like such a wonderful culmination of that character arc for me it's like i realized that i'm not going to be like the headliner of the x-men right it's like i'm probably not in like the top 50 best x-men but i'm like i'm okay with myself now and i'm like doing the things that i want in my life and like using that experience to like relate to Roxy who's like just entering into this period where Mm -hmm. she's like oh yeah I'm gonna be like great I'm gonna be a star x-man but then being told it's like you're not gonna make it yeah it's not gonna happen for you right and Paige is sort of an example of how that can be okay you don't actually have to be I mean, this is always what I've wanted for Alex Summers mm. is like for everybody to just accept that he's not very good at being a superhero. Exactly. For, you it's know, okay, it's bro. okay. You can do other stuff. You should go finish your dissertation. I mean, that's what Paige is like. I'm getting my PhD. That's the thing. When I was like reading everything, like at the end of like when Generation X, the first volume ends, I was just like thinking it's like this girl should have gone to grad school, but instead she got messed up with Warren fucking Worthington. But then let's like, she actually does go and it's then like, she yes, does go to grad you. school. Yeah. It's like, listen, she had a gap year where she fucked an older man. <laughs> Who among us has never done that if we're inclined toward man fucking? I'm just <laughs> saying that'll happen. I also like how she's characterized there. I when I initially read it, I was just like, a husk is the counselor, because I had just read the Wolverine and the X-Men stuff, and I hadn't followed that through all the way to the end let's say so it was a little abrupt for me but now having read all of it i i can see how it's a satisfying arc Mm -hmm. i think that the most satisfying stuff with her is when her intellect takes center stage versus how many feats she can do i mean this is how i feel about most things like i'm bored by like who's the most powerful like i think that's the least interesting thing about x-men In particular, like before her powers are even established, one of my favorite page stories now that I I reread it recently for like all kinds of X-Force adjacent episodes I was doing um, is in Young Hunt, which is (laughs) this crazy event. 
better than you would think. Better than you would think. I mean, incomprehensible. Nisius is pretty good. I mean, but so Young Hunt, like even when he is like flying by the seat of his pants a little, I mean, he wrote Executioner's Song in a week, the outline for it. (laughs) And it's a classic for all time. Yeah, it's, well, it's, here's the thing. It is. It's, there's some real good stuff in that. As I said in the Stripe episode, I kind of hate Executioner's Song, but it's also really great. It was like never, I don't know. I don't have an attachment to like that period like right me pre, like 94 because like that's like so and i've always kind of like had a chip on my shoulder because that's like the people who love that stuff get like the most like well they're rude about the late 90s certainly yeah because exactly the late don't, 90s be, don't be mean was uh, bad though <laughs> sorry it just was siegel and kelly's stuff wasn't bad but i liked it but anyway um yeah i never really identified with the jim lee era yeah so. well this is post Jim Lee, because this is after right, the but image. Of, but I like, get what you're saying. Like yeah, it's yeah. the early that early nineties. I mean, basically from Claremont's departure up through Age of Apocalypse is like a exactly. very distinct era for sure. But what I like in the Young Hunt, which uh okay, so how to explain the Young Hunt? Uh, I've mentioned it in passing on other episodes. Basically, there is this group called the Upstarts. It will eventually be revealed that Celine set up the Upstarts to have funsies because she's kind of a troll but the leader of the upstarts is this guy called the games master and the games master sorry to interrupt is that revealed that Celine is involved Celine organized the whole thing the whole game yeah I don't think I read it that close they turn on her and she becomes like a quarry for the game okay sorry but it makes no it's okay but the thing is it's like, why the Hellions? And then it's like, oh, because Celine wants to fuck with Emma. That's kind of funny, right? Okay. But so the upstarts are basically the big threat that's introduced immediately post Claremont. He had created some of them beforehand. So like Shinobi Shaw is a late Claremont creation. The Fenris twins are a pretty prominent 80s Claremont creation. And Fabian Cortez is one of the very last Claremont creations along with the other initial group of acolytes. The rest of the upstarts are Trevor Fitzroy, who, don't worry about it, we'll get to that in like a Bishop episode, I guess, uh, at some point. And Sienna Blaze, who you truly don't have to worry about. Just know she's an icon. (laughs) (laughs) So I have this like, I didn't know this until very recently, but I have this like low grade resentment of Sienna Blaze because I recently learned after starting the podcast that Zaladane was supposed to be the final oh, in- member of this group when Claremont was mapping it out. And after Claremont got pushed out, they decided instead of resurrecting Zaladane with Earth powers, which had been his plan, they were just going to introduce a new woman with Earth powers. And it's Sienna Blaze. Sienna Blaze has earth control powers, but her power is so... There's a drawback, which is that she manipulates the tectonic plates specifically, so everything she does causes, like, natural disasters. She looks great doing it. And Zaladane in her final arc in the Savage Land, where she is killed by her father, Magneto, is, like, messing with the tectonic plates because of all the magnetic stuff she's doing. So you can see where this was, you know, gonna... Anyway, so that's just my... That's interesting. That's my Sienna Blaze struggle, but I, it's not her fault. <laughs> with so many of these characters, it's not her fault. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the... That's, at the end of the day, right? Not, not your fault, hun. i I'm sorry that I resent 
you. But so Santa Blaze is also there. Point is, the upstarts, they are playing a game where they are killing. They're all mutants and they're killing mutants for points. Like it's a competition between them. And so the big play of the upstarts that is famous is that Trevor Fitzroy slaughters the Hellions, Emma's students, which is what precipitates Emma's heel face turn and leads into Generation X eventually. First, she's in a coma for a while because Emma loves a coma moment. Um, but she does. She just loves a coma. She's in a coma like seven times. I mean, it seems relaxing, honestly. Like yeah, her, you, get co- some, her coma uh, you get to spend some time in somebody else's body. It's really Yeah, and like she, chic. you know, she's very like, because she's telepathic, her comas seem kind of zen. Like she's just kind of floating around, like, you know, so it's like, she's fine. But yeah, so that's like the biggest upstart play. And so the young hunt is a little bit later, a couple years later. And the Games Master's, the Games Master's power is that he has omnipathy, which means that he is at all times telepathically hearing the thoughts of every living being on Earth, human and mutant at least, like not animals, presumably, but like any sapient being, he is hearing the thoughts all the time. This has driven him so insane that he doesn't remember his own name and has purely become the Games Master. And all he cares about is winning and like competing with people and advancing his own whatever. So the young hunt is a competition between all of the upstarts for more points to capture and kill any of the Hellions or new mutants who are still alive. So empath and magma are the surviving Hellions and various new mutants characters have transitioned into X-Force. Mm-hmm. Sam and Tabby end up captured in the young hunt and Paige comes to the rescue, even though everybody's like, no, I don't think so. Like you're a kid, you haven't been trained, whatever. But she actually does save the day because she outsmarts the games master. And that is really the first thing that really characterizes her is that she is very intelligent, which I had forgotten until i read this story it's cool but i honestly have i don't know something about that run like i said like i didn't pick up on the selene of it but i was just like what does she actually like bargain so she bargains with the games master to basically like delay his games it's like let the next generation of mutants like flourish and then try your hand at them because if you stop them now i don't know I think it's kind of clever. What she does is appeal to his competitive nature and say, killing teenagers is not that impressive an accomplishment. What you should do instead is train other young mutants yourself, develop your own stable of X-Men type people, and then pit your mind against Charles Xavier. Wouldn't that be a more satisfying game? And the games master thinks about it for a second. It's like, you know, that actually would be a lot more fun and decides to do it. Although that never gets picked up because we never see like the junior upstarts or anything. That's not like a thing that happens. Fabian Cortez, by the way, because he's getting some, you know, attention this era. Just so you understand how awful Fabian Cortez is. He sets up the whole like acolyte thing specifically so he can kill a whole bunch of mutants in space and get points. Like he's actually trying to kill Magneto for upstarts points and he kills his own sister 
that's um, like part of the game. So not a good guy, uh, just to be clear. That's the promise of Krakoa, right? Like you can be a real piece of shit. And as long as you're not Fenris, you might have a chance. That I appreciated in today's X-Corp that Fenris have decided to betray the Krakoan project, apparently, because right. I mean, we would all like to stop pretending it's chill to have Fenris on the island. <laughs> like, we don't want them here. We believe in this amnesty thing, but like, get out of here. We don't. This is not this is not working for us. But yeah, so I just like that story because it, it characterizes. She also has an exchange with Sam in that story that's kind of fun. This is when Sam is believed to be an external. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's like, you're immortal. And he's like, I am apparently. So they say. And she's like, am I going to be immortal? I'm a mutant, too. And he's like, I don't know, Paige. And they have this whole back and forth about it. And then she gets really pissed at him because she's like, I'm going to go to Charles Xavier's and train as a mutant in my gifts. I don't want to be a failure like you, basically, because he has quit and gone back to the farm. And she's just like, leaving Xavier's is the stupidest fucking thing you ever did. And I am going to be an X-Man, actually. In her defense, she really wanted to be an X. She really wanted to be an X. So those are the two things we get at the beginning. It's like she is gonna be a fucking superhero, and she is way smarter than most sixteen-year-olds. Oh. But is underestimated because she has this thick Kentucky accent. She's not very well educated, etc. And so she has a lot of insecurity about that. She's just a kid. Yeah, I and I feel like outside of the examples we've already talked about, that does kind of get lost a little bit because. In Gen X, over the course of Gen X, her story really does become all about the romance with Chamber, which was popular. I remember the fan fiction at the time, like people were very into Paige and Jono. I mean, listen, it's like the bad boy and the good girl. Like it's a very, it was sort of like a Scott and Jean meets Rogan Gambit thing. They like actually like in the like Carrick uh, sketch material that's in the first issue of Gen X, they like bill her as like, the new Jean Grey. It's like Jean Grey makes Will Rogers. It's like, okay. Doesn't really go there. Sure doesn't. No. But yeah, their whole romance is interesting because it just like never goes anywhere, which is like, I don't know, one of those things just like nails that age so well. Yeah. I think. Like he's like three years older than her or something like that. Maybe not that much, but he's. Uh, no yeah, no, he is because. Yeah. <laughs> In Lobdell's notes, he's, uh, I believe Jono is 20 when the book starts. Oh, wow. And that's not, I don't think that's set on the page so he can hand wave it. But mm -hmm. the initial plan, my understanding, or at least something that Lobdell was floating, was for Jono and Emma oh, my. to hook up. <laughs> and that's why Jono had to be older than the other kids. I am obviously yeah thrilled that that never happened because that is a terrible and idea we got so much more flirting between emma and banshee which yeah which great. was way better i mean yeah. that's another thing that came out in today's issues was like emma mm -hmm. and banshee finally flirting in a comic again that was fun, was fun. banshee looks so fucking hot in this issue of fun. i i don't remember the artist off the top of my head but he, uh he's uh, he's uh, i can't think of his name either he's italian he's a fill-in but i would love if he stuck around yeah or at least, you know, alternated or something. He, it's just, it's a fun, yeah, it good. very different style that I, that I thought was great. Ivan Fiorelli. But um, before we move on too much from the Young Hunt, I got to mention my absolute favorite part in Young Hunt or Child's Play, I guess is the actual story. Yeah, they keep calling it the Young Hunt, right, yeah. but it's like... <laughs> 
<laughs> one word young hunt young hunt tabby and Paige get to hang out because like Tabby's yeah, that's dating fun. sam and she's visiting the family farm and they're just walking around and tabby calls Paige Paige the rage which i don't know i love it <laughs> <laughs> what a stupid cute endearing nickname to give your boyfriend's little sister who knows what it actually is supposed to mean it's just like hey sport <laughs> Yeah, no, it's just Tabby being funny. Like, I hadn't realized until I did rereading for the Sam episode how much I actually do like Sam and Tabby together and how sad it is that that just completely fell off, much like Tabby's role in the franchise in general, to be honest. Yeah. But uh, it's also really. She kind of got paged a little bit. Yeah. Tabby. Like, at a certain point, once her romance plot was no longer the center of the narrative, she just disappears. But yeah, like, so the relationship with Chamber never really goes anywhere. They kiss early on and he is so horny about it that he (laughs) telekinetically explodes a building. It's like unclear if they actually kiss because it's like... Well, he doesn't have a mouth. How do you, right, exactly. What do you... But, uh, she kisses the uh, the face yeah, mask yeah, yeah, that yeah. he... Or like the, the little scarf. And that's thing after the legacy virus thing. She's yes. like drunk off of presumably one beer. She gets drunk beer. off one beer, which is funny. Although, that's a good joke. It's like, that's a how good many joke. beers have you drunk? It's like counting this one. Yeah, just one. one which is like, it could have been more than just one. And she's She just, could be you know, lying, right. Cute, but... but Anyway, they go up to the girl's dorm. He's going to like put her to bed, be a gentleman, but she's like, come here, Jono. Yeah. And then the building explodes. Been there. That is St. Patrick's Day, my freshman year of college. So I get it. Like, I get that. Like, when the guy's like, you really need to go to sleep, and you're like, I just walk quickly. Like, it's not, you know, that's, that's, that's relatable. But he explodes the dorm. Then he gets really upset because she sort of implies, like, I didn't mean to. Right. It's the classic teenage misunderstanding. It's like a misunderstanding. Like, nobody finishes the sentence to, like, say what they mean. Pretty girl, you'd never want to kiss a monster like me. And she's like, no, I just didn't mean to get you so horny that you exploded a building. (laughs) Like, that's not, you know. After that, they really are just dancing around it forever. Then Jay Ferber just kind of writes it out, has her get together with this human student at the school who discovers she's a mutant and like blackmails her into a date. Like all of them. He like sees them training. Yeah. He's like, I've discovered your secret. And they're like, oh, my God, are you going to like tell? the?" He's like, I literally just want Paige to go on a date with me. And she's like, it would be super creepy, except that Paige is like, I actually really like him. I'm going to go on the date. Everybody's like, oh, and Chambers pissed. So, you know, that goes on for a while. He's never seen again after the end of Gen X. And the end of the very end of Gen X, Paige and Jono are like embracing as he leaves because he's been invited to join the X-Men, not her, notably. Mm -hmm. And she's like, don't forget me, Jono. And he's like, I could never forget you, beautiful girl. Like, you're the best. Um, You know, to be clear, Chamber only speaks telepathic. As he's about to call Candy Kane. Literally. So that's the thing is he then pivots into the Joe Casey uncanny where he's fucking this British pop star named Sugar Kane. And Paige is not happy about that when we hear next from her because next from her is she pops up later in that run helping well, it's her and Jubilee and Monet are like 
quote unquote help oh, yeah, 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 yeah. X-Corp project, but mostly because like he's lost his damn mind after Moira got killed and they're keeping an eye on him. And then after that, she pivots into the Austin X-Men where eventually Chamber shows back up and she's like with Warren now and it becomes a love triangle, which is insane. Yeah. I feel like at that point it had overstayed its welcome, in my opinion. Yeah, well, and then they write it out because Chamber pivots off into Thierry Weapon X and lies to Paige about it because he's going undercover. And it's like, you two be happy, like, bye, you know, girl. Uh. And I feel like they, like, never speak again. I mean, like, I know that they do, but that's the end of the romance. They're, like, in panels together after that. Yeah, like, they appear together in things, but, like, you would never know. It's a lot like Sam and Tabby are now. You would never know that they spent the entire 90s in this, like, death spiral of will they, won't they. I'm sure neither of them want to revisit that to be honest <laughs> just like let's leave it in the past we were both very uh, annoying horny teenagers i mean you chamber were an adult but it's funny because like i hated so much when whedon had kitty and Piotr get back together but i don't think i would hate like Paige and jono giving it another shot I kind of liked in Generation S Volume 2, she's kind of like pushing him to like go out with Jubilee. With Jubilee, yeah. Just that like, was interesting. I just, on. I don't know. I feel like, um, I mean, you'd need someone interested in doing something with either of those characters, right? True, which is. But a... <laughs> I just do think that there's something fun about the you can never go home again. You could do it a little differently from like, because like Whedon was like, Kitty and Peter are together and like, it's perfect. Whereas... Right it would be fun I think to do the we never got to be together let's give this a try and then it truly just doesn't work because they're both like 27 now and the chemistry from when they were teenagers is just not Yeah, they're not the same people anymore like I think that could be an interesting story mm-hmm. but again like they would have to one of them at least would have to like be in a book which they're not at the <laughs> moment <laughs> yeah but you know that's just how it is with X-Men. There are too many. Yeah. So we have to talk about She Lies with Angels, I guess. <laughs> I just don't know what to say about it because I've talked about it at length on this podcast before. And um, so just to remind you, if you're a listener who doesn't remember that. So Warren dumps her and he tells her it's because of the age gap. And then in the like Hatfields and McCoy's Romeo and Juliet plot that her brother Joshua later called Jay Icarus is having with a character you don't have to worry about who dies. Spoiler alert. Don't read this story. It's one of the worst X-Men stories ever. It's not good. Warren admits to Lucinda Paige's mother that he actually has broken up with her because his feelings for her have gotten pretty serious. And after what happened to Betsy, He's too afraid of a woman he loves dying in combat again. He like can't allow himself to get emotionally attached. And Paige, I gotta be honest, I did not reread She Lies with Angels. She <laughs> is like, she like walks in, she like, overhears it. Right? Yeah. Listen to uh, Guthrie, who is like besainted on earth actually is like so loving of her children the platonic ideal of a mother yeah she encourages their romance just because she wants just Paige because she to wants be Paige happy. to be happy even though it is so 
patently obvious that this is a terrible idea. And what does she get for her generosity? And what Lucinda gets for her troubles is Paige is like, rotten hail, Warren. Like, you know, and then they get back together. He's like, I'm sorry, babe. Like, I just, you know, I care so much about you. And then they fly off into the sky and their clothes clothes begin falling from the sky. I think Wolverine catches something. I think he's he's the one who stays watching, I think. He's peeking, I think. Yeah. Lucinda looks up and is like, oh, oh, my. And like goes back in the house because she has just seen her daughter presumably getting slam fucked in the sky by a 35 year old's winged. What's really wild about that is the scene continues to be like a bunch of robots blowing everything up and they're still in the sky. (laughs) They don't notice. No, they're so busy just rutting in the air that they don't notice the chaos unfolding beneath them. And listen, I believe that Warren Worthington III is good at sex. Candy Southern doesn't date a man for decades if he can't lay pipe. I'm assuming that's my Candy Southern head. I mean, yeah, but I think it stands to reason to me. (laughs) And, you know, like Charlotte Jones wouldn't tolerate like low quality dick either. And frankly, neither would Betsy, except for the Phantom X period. But she was at a very low place. (laughs) I, I, you know, I believe <laughs> that statement was made. <laughs> she was. That was rock bottom was the Phantom X years. Girl Phantom X. That was fine. But yeah, that was... boy Phantom X, Betsy, hun. That was not. I can't disagree. You can't. I actually forgot about that. And I was like, wait, who has Betsy dated? It's like, oh, Phantom X. As a Betsy stan, there's about 30 years of publication that are really uh, tricky for me to, to parse through. And uh, one of the things that's most fun about being a Betsy fan is laughing about all of Betsy's truly horrible decisions. And one of those <laughs> is dating Phantom X, which is just a crazy thing to do. That's fully insane. But yeah, so Warren and Paige fuck in the sky. And like, I love that for them, I guess. Like, get it, girl. But in front of your mom. Yeah. Why is Chuck Austin so horny? And why was he allowed to get away with it? so often in that period so he's said more recently like he's like i had no idea what i was doing and there was very little editorial oversight right so i just kind of like winged it and i'm aware that it's not that good you know and i was like well points for honesty i mean he's gone on to be a very celebrated and successful television producer of animation i think he did steven universe and she like he's done a lot of you know, so obviously he like has talent and there are bits and pieces of the Austin run that are pretty good. It's just that it's always like in otherwise the middle of like a John Waters movie that doesn't know it's a John Waters movie. Like it's very, I mean, it's camp, but it's crazy because you're just like, yeah. what? Why is any of this happening? And, you know, like to go back to She Lies with Angels for a minute until like fucking in the sky in front of your mom, my my parents and I are not like, puritanical about sex like i'll make jokes about sex in front of my parents or like if i have a boyfriend i will have sex in my parents house if we're visiting or whatever like sorry like oh you heard me (laughs) through the wall like i'm a grown man what are you gonna do you know like in the same way that like i've been living with my parents all through the pandemic if my parent my my mother's gonna kill me if she ever listens to this but thank (laughs) you she'll never listen to an excellent podcast ever but no like you know if they want to snuggle on the couch i'll go upstairs like that's fine you know yeah i would not fuck someone in front of my mother it just feels like a norm violation to me yeah that's kind of like it's a great summation of sort of like the most egregious 
I don't think even Chris Claremont, who is right. like noted kinkster, would have written that. It's just so much stuff where it's just like you are no longer writing a human being. You're just like it's just a fuck toy. Yeah. Like, really? It's like at that point, it's just a sex fantasy. Yeah. You know, because she wouldn't do that. Paige would right. never do that. And that's like carried through into like Wolverine and X Men. It's just like yeah, where just, she's just a sex object for like sad right. incel toad. And it's like yeah, it's like this is like uh, Toad's character moment. Right, Toad is getting an arc, and so he's in love with the pretty girl who's not so pretty anymore because she's lost her mind, right. you know. And it's just like, come on, guys. Surely we've progressed enough as a genre that you don't like. That Husk and Toad plot would have felt retrograde in the 90s. Yeah. And just going back to like Lobdell's run, it's just like she's so realized as a character throughout that and like has so much like integrity throughout the whole bullshit with Jono. Yeah. They're like breakup scene. They go home to like visit the family and like nobody's home. Chambers like, oh, of course they're not here. They don't want to see a freak like me. They don't want to see a freak like me, love, because I've got no face. And it's just like, shut up, dude. Yeah. And then he just like ditches her there, like home. Yeah, he like walks off. It's very um, it's like a very my so-called life energy. Their whole vibe. I think you nailed it. That's what it is. He is like Jordan Catalano as a Mm mutant with no face from Like, uh, you know, but that's the thing is like she she is self-possessed. And specifically, even though she is really head over heels for Jono, she refuses to let him disrespect her. Yeah. That's why the degree to which these male writers then disrespected her is disquieting. I mean, it would be disquieting with any female character, but there is something about her age, which Austin emphasizes a lot. Like Jamie Madrox fucks Monet in X Factor Investigations, but you know what never happens in X Factor Investigations? Anyone talking about Monet's age? She's not saying she's not taking on her ID when right. And I, I well, and I said on the Monet episode, it's like the jump that Cordelia Chase has from Buffy to Angel, where it's like in Angel season one, that character's eighteen, nineteen, but they literally will never say so, and the actress is thirty, so they just act like she's thirty for the rest of that show. Similarly, like Monet, the minute she shows up in X Factor Investigations is like 23 and has been 23 to 26 ever since. Mm -hmm. With Husk and Jubilee, who was never allowed to age to the point where they vampired her, which I still think is so fucking funny. I miss it. I know that's an unpopular opinion. The Jubilee fans are always like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm sorry. It's funny that if you're not going to let this character age, you make her a vampire. That's really funny. I can't imagine what that would have been like in the moment. Like that's one of the part of the time period where I've like read it all at once. It's like, oh yeah, this happened. I know, right. But like it was years of Vampire Jubilee all the way up until that Chrissy Estrange. So weird. But so Jubilee, who somehow just gets younger in this period, she's like (laughs) 17 at this point, even though she should be older, you know, it doesn't matter. There's that whole arc where Skin gets murdered by the Church of Humanity. He gets crucified on the lawn. The one person who can't be revived. It's like they use Warren's blood to bring everybody back. It's like, oh, Oh, no. There's two. Who is the? It's him and Jesse Bedlam, the black character from X-Force. Of course. course It's like the two men of color die on the lawn. Magma and Jubilee are saved. Like, they don't even show Skin, like, in the scene until he's on his deathbed. 
like I just like looked at the other day. It's like you see Bedlam like looking very light skinned, but it's still like oh. Yeah, no, Paige walks in and sees that Jubilee has pulled right. through and is like, Jubilee, you're okay. And they're like embracing, and then she's like, What's wrong? It's like, wait, did somebody cough? <laughs> What's wrong, Jubilee? And Jubilee just turns and they both it's like suddenly Paige turns and oh, skin is dying in the bed next oh, to us. My, my good friend who <laughs> my I good didn't friend, notice. Who I also like kind of had. They teased that as maybe yeah. like a little bit of a flirtation early on in Gen X before yeah, the Paige and Jono thing crystallizes. You know, I, I it's just it's disrespectful. And then now maybe this is just a, a research error that we can wave off because in Phalanx Covenant, Skin, Angelo, Angelo, it was pointed out to me that Angelo is not a re- like Angelo is Italian and he should be on hell. Mm, yeah. But like, whatever. <laughs> Point is, it's not the first. That's a Shion Koi man problem and we're just going to have to deal with it, right? Angelo, though, he didn't have a last name in Phalanx Covenant. The other characters did, but he was just Angelo. And then mm. over the course of Gen X, He's established to be Angelo Espinosa, but then in the Austin plot where he's murdered, he's arbitrarily assigned just like a different Spanish last name. I don't even remember what it is. That's the plot where like the bigoted funeral director won't allow them to bury him. That I don't hate. It's just like everything else about the plot I fucking hate. Right. So, you know. So that's around when the Page and Warren stuff is really kicking into gear. And they keep stressing that she's a teenager. Like they mm-hmm. say it. She's like 19. It's like just like, yeah. Yeah, she's like 18, 19. And you're like, because mm-hmm. again, like Warren is one of the 60s X-Men. Like we saw Hank turn 30 on Page in the early yeah. 90s, as I recall. Like it's just, it's a little much. And the characters do comment on it, but not enough to make it feel like the writing is condemning it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, the writing like sells it. It's like, no, this is real. This is real love. Love that will last forever. It does the same thing with Havoc and Annie Gazakanian, which is also right. completely insane. What's perturbing about it is the fetishistic emphasis on her youth. Like, there's yeah. a throwaway line during Havoc's bachelor party. Oh, yeah. Before Havoc and Polaris's failed wedding. Where someone says to the shape-shifting stripper, maybe you could do someone underage for my friend here and gestures at Warren. Isn't it Bobby? I feel like Bobby was like the the main asshole. In yeah, it's just, it's just really gross. And I'm glad that every subsequent writer was like, no thanks, apart from like Claremont going, he's dating who? And just like throwing her in that one scene, right, yeah. you know? But otherwise, it's so funny to read Claremont writing her because he's just like, this is who the character is. It's like, OK, he's like, who is this person? This is Sam's sister. It's like, all right. She has what power? OK. <laughs> Part of the thing with her power is some people like bring imagination to it. And some people are just like, oh, she turns into stone metal. OK, cool. And they just like repeat it over and over again. So it's just like Claremont having her turn into like a bunch of tires to like bounce right. around. It's like <laughs> one that I like is um, during Gen X, there's an X-Men unlimited story where they encounter these like Asgardian. Yeah. Dwarves that or one's really cute. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she Asgardian saves stuff. the day by turning into gold, which right. they're obsessed with. And then like she peels off some gold skin and hands it to them. And it's like, will you leave everybody alone now? And they're like, gold. So yeah. that's funny. 
Like, and again, is her being clever and solving mm-hmm. a situation, solving a problem. I also like that artist because he draws her. I was like, at some point, I was just like, Sam has big ears, so I feel like every Guthrie needs to have like big ears as part of their like character design. And she's kind of got like a gawky appearance in that X Men Unlimited. So it's like, all right, you get it. Yeah, that's a cute time. I think that's the same artist who drew the uh, like Halloween special. That sounds right. Did you read that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any other stories you'd like to talk about before we pivot into listener questions? Yeah, we were kind of skipping over the whatchamacallit, Counter X stuff, like the Warren Ellis, Brian Wood, which is again, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, hate to bring it up, but it's also like, aside from like the very early, it's kind of like the best Husk has like appeared. There's a, like, she is kind of fueling all her like horny energy into like super overachiever mode. And she like becomes a hacker and yeah. she's like running this whole operation, like going around, like trying to solve like mutant bigotry and like a post Columbine world. She turns into like some really weird stuff. <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> I love this. She's like running on a treadmill, like downloading stuff on the internet, like printing out like Wikipedia pages. <laughs> just like, we got to yeah. do it. She's like hacking shit. That's part of the interesting pivot toward the end of Gen X is like after Sync dies, they realize that like most of them anyway are like, actually, we don't want to be X-Men. Like, yeah. We don't yeah, want to yeah. be superheroes. This is not actually a light. Like we don't want to go through this again. And instead, she gets really obsessed with like protecting endangered children around yeah. the world. And that's sort of what Gen X pivots into toward the end of that book is like child services, almost like yeah. sort of a, an like a independent. Weird. She's like very, you know, like hackers sort of hack the planet, sort of yeah, erase yeah. capitalism. It's very of the time. And it's, it's like very Brian Wood, to be honest, like, I say that not having read a lot of his stuff, but it's just like the vibe, mm-hmm. um, like a phone freaker sort of yeah. thing. But there's a, a really nice solo story. Like I do appreciate the way that like little era is broken up. It's like the first arc is like six months later and then they double back and like show like how they got there. And then I think the last arc in Gen X is each of them on like individual, like, sort of slice of life adventures and there's like a the story with husk i think it's like 74 or something is like Mm -hmm. her interacting with a ghost and just like it's really sweet yeah i like it's the second to last issue of the book and it's like this weird bottle app which Mm -hmm. is interesting where like yeah it's this like old-timey ghost of a girl who was abused as a student at the massachusetts academy like before emma ever bought it like Mm -hmm. back in the day the ghost shows Paige how to find a letter that she hid in the attic like 50 years ago or whatever. Yeah. And Paige finds it and brings it to an old woman in the present who's the ghost sister. And it's actually like a very sweet story, but it's extremely odd. Like it's yeah. not a typical it's very X-Men story weird, at but all. it's like it's such a good showcase of Paige. It's like she starts off, she's like doing the most like uh blah 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 she's i think that's the scene with the treadmill and like the power goes out she's like well i don't know i'm the only one here so i've got to fix it Mm -hmm. that's like uh sean did a good job with the security system but i can 
get around it. And that's also around when she develops like this rubber husk that lets her run super yeah, fast, yeah, yeah. which it's doesn't so, really make sense. It's but so weird, but I love. <laughs> I feel like it. Like I think she literally says like another new power. Like it's <laughs> like at a certain point you're kind of telegraphing that like a husk. I mean, she's like sinking that way you can just give her sort of a new power for any plots. Yeah. On some level, those two characters and Monet, like the thing that's really different about Gen X versus the New Mutants, the original New Mutants, is that the original New Mutants were very limited in their power mm-hmm. set and their powers were very situational apart from Magma and Ilyana who are later additions. But like the core original team, they have these very situational powers, whereas Husk, Sink, and Monet can function well in just about any situation even with a jubilee there's a constant emphasis on the fact that like her power will one day right yeah be massive although we've never quite gotten there yet and it's been you know 30 years i don't think but, it's gonna happen but, you know turning into a vampire can really like mess well she up got decimated plans. she really right. got you know fucked by the decimation I think that part of it also, though, is that the fireworks are so iconic that nobody wants to develop her powers beyond the fireworks because Jubilee is the fireworks girl, you know? Right. So uh, she's sort of stuck in that rut a little bit. But we'll talk about that in a Jubilee episode that is coming soon whenever Christina Strain has time to record because she is very busy with her TV show, Shadow and Bone. For sure. Very cool. It's amazing. So love, love her being successful. Yeah. She deserves it. She does deserve it. Well, I think now is a good time to get into the listener questions. We got a lot of questions about Hush. <laughs> so I can't read them all, but thank you all for writing in thank as you always. Julian Lopez writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest Karen, I first wanted to say a giant size thank you for dedicating so much time and effort into showcasing all these amazing characters. As a teenager, I was reading on KennyXon.net almost every day after school. So imagine my surprise to find your podcast as an adult and learn all about my favorite X-Men all over again. Cerebro, as well as the entire Krakoan era, has reignited my love for these incredibly complex and lovable mutants. Well, thank you. That's very sweet. My first introduction to Paige was surprisingly in the Gen X Crossroads novel by J. Stephen York. I'm not entirely sure if this novel is considered canon or not, and I'm also not sure if you're familiar with it, but it was where I was first drawn to Husk as a character. I was also a shy, nerdy brown noser who consistently tried being the best student, but was constantly overshadowed by my betters. I wasn't as icy cool as Monet and wasn't one of the boys like Jubilee often was. It was just a chunky young gay teenage boy with textbooks as friends and an overachiever complex. Paige's growth in peaks and valleys throughout that novel really taught me a lot about persevering through typical difficult teenage dilemmas and the relationships she nurtures and develops among her peers, especially with Monet and Jono, were very important to my own development. As you know, the AOA version of Paige is incredibly different from her main 616 counterpart. AOA Husk was ruthless, vindictive, and arguably a much stronger mutant with a much more developed power set. Apart from AOA, we've seen Husk's powers grow exponentially, and she's been capable of shedding her skin to reveal powerful and innovative forms. We all know how you feel about fornicating in the sky with Warren and the recent Husk storylines before Hoxpox, where her fragile mind began to crumble like her superpowered psoriasis, and that this was a big point of contention for your dislike of the character. Hickman's insertion of both Husk and Monet during the mission to the Mother Mold was a surprisingly interesting cameo, but she unfortunately dies immediately. Do you think there's any way that Paige will be introduced in any other X-Line books where she just no longer a good fit in any of these stories? In this Krakoan era, Monet's had strong roles and is currently leading X-Corp, and Everett was given leading roles in the Children of the Vault storyline and Duggan's X-Men relaunch, but do you think Paige will ever be given a proper chance? I'm so sorry for rambling, but I would really love to see Paige live up to her teenage goals of being a field leader for an X-Men team, but unless she's rewritten entirely, I just don't see it happening in the future. Once 
once again, thank you for everything that you do and stay safe always. Sincerely, Julian. So you did ramble, but it's fine because it was a good ramble. I enjoyed it. Karen, what are your thoughts on that? You know, as much as I love seeing her every time she's on the page, it's not like she should be at the front of the line. Like everybody should prioritize cost like over, you know, like obviously like sync. It's his time to shine and like Monet mm-hmm. all the time. Want to see more skin. Definitely like Angelo. Yeah, not more torn off discarded husks. Well, I, I, would I know you also want to see that. I don't. <laughs> but I think, you know, there'd be, we were talking so much about the young hunt and I've been like, as I've been like prepping for this episode, thinking a lot about the games master. And it's like, oh, it's kind of, I see similar, like, I don't know. I like him being like a, a classic villain to Husk and just sort of like, they're both kind of like, wrapped up in like their potential that never quite got realized right so it's like it'd be (laughs) interesting to like see that explored he fucked with shatterstar at one point right he's just like a very random character and i feel like you could bring him back around i mean the upstarts are having a big moment fabian is around fenris are around shinobi shaw is around we haven't seen fitzroy i don't think yet or i can't remember if we have but i feel like if if somebody can make games master work that would be a coup yeah, and I mean, honest. listen, they're making Onslaught work right now. Like, you yeah. know, they're 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 going for it. They're making a lot of characters work that I don't think have quite worked, particularly villains. Like, you know, I love Apocalypse and Celine, but most of their stories are not good, especially. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that they're both really fun right now. I mean, Apocalypse is totally off the page right now, but got a pretty incredible arc before that. Yeah, I like Celine and Xcorp today. And Celine was killing it today. That was so fun. Yeah. I guess generally, I think, you know, there's always room, but it really will come down to an author or a creative team who really like is interested because Mm -hmm. there's just like so many other characters to use. Yeah, I think her problem is like you want her to be a field leader, an X-Men team. But I think she realized as part of her character arc that she's not meant to do that yeah she's also not meant to be a teacher because we've seen that she (laughs) is not good at that i love seeing her in the crucible like being there to like support to support melody yeah yeah for melody i did like that she was in the mother mold team it was a weird pull but that was kind of fun (laughs) in house of x a a funny joke it's like i was like so excited seeing her on the covers with like the big rocky fists and it's like oh they're finally gonna like use her power to like an extent we've like never seen it this from aoa basically yeah you open the issue and like uh you know they're putting the sheet over her yeah she dies (laughs) instantly right yeah (laughs) I think the guidance counselor role for her is smart. I think that you could incorporate her into New Mutants that way. The problem is that Xian is better at that. (laughs) That is already in the book, you know? Like, she has that problem that a lot of the post-New Mutant student characters have, where they're all the same age now because nobody Mm -hmm. is allowed to age too much. And the Claremont characters are always just going to be more iconic to most people. Apart from Monet, who broke out of Gen X and Sync, who's now having a real moment, none of them, even Chamber, who initially seemed like the breakout, have ever Mm -hmm. really gotten that moment to really like pop off. It just has never really happened for them. And I think at this point, yeah, it will take someone who was a huge Gen X fan 
wanting like if, to do if a there page was a story. book that like could make use of those characters that kind of like fell between the cracks of like new mutants and academy x right that would be like it but otherwise i'm like happy to just like see her like show up yeah because i'm trying to think like you look at the line right now and i don't think there's any book that she would fit in on the mm-hmm. cast i mean they threw her into fallen angels but that book didn't work period so i mean like with a lot of the characters they like she was just like a body on the page it was her and bling or like the reinforcements and the idea of them still having like a close relationship is cool but they don't do anything yeah to be honest i just started rereading fallen angels but i didn't get to the part where they like well it's just the tail end reintroduced right yeah so I mean, she has a cool, there's like a cool uh, cover where she's right. like. <laughs> Literally my thoughts. Like, yeah, ripping cool her cover. skin off. I like yeah. those covers. There's a lot of cool Winter. covers from Fallen yeah. Angels. That is certainly a true statement. There was, I, there's a great gag where it's just like. Oh, the Conan and Sinister stuff is fun. Conan shows up with Sinister and he, she, he's like, what are you doing here? And she's like, I brought purpose and I've brought cable. And then it's just like a close-up of Sinister's face. Like, like, ooh, Cable, my favorite. Right. <laughs> just to be real, I think the only particularly good thing in Fallen Angels is the Conan and yeah. Sinister hook, which is why that's pretty much the only thing from it that got carried through into Hellions. You know, if I'm going to be real, I just like the art. I can't, like, look at. It's I don't know wild. what happened. It's truly wild. I'm like, I feel like, I don't know. They look like vocaloids. It's so fucking weird. It's the like, thing where it's like weird. And then most of the time, like the establishing shots are like clearly 3D models that are just yeah. like hastily painted. It looks to... like the first season of Sailor Moon Crystal when it was super <laughs> cheap. Mm-hmm. And like, I also just don't like how Kanan is written in it. So yeah. that was a that was a problem for me. But anyway, I digress because we try to keep it positive on this podcast and uh it gave us hellions which i'm obsessed with so yeah that's fine but husk didn't continue into hellions even though husk actually would be a great character for hellions because they need a therapist like nobody's business that's the actually that's the book i would put her in because first of all zeb wells is to me the undisputed master of rescuing characters who have been thrown in the garbage so i would love to see him take this character for a spin Mm mm-hmm what he did for Karma, for Moonstar, now for Kanan. He made everybody love Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Like, that's impressive, know. you know? <laughs> I think that, well, and he's rehabilitating Alex, a character mm-hmm. who really has been shit on for the last 20 years. I mean, years. let's talk about Grey Crow. Grey Crow was just like a genocidal psychopath before. I mean, there have been a couple moments where it's like, is there hidden depths to Grey Crow? But we never got really to see them, you know? And now I care about Grey Crow, the guy who murdered those Morlock children back in 1986 with a machine gun. Suddenly I'm like, oh, Grey Crow, I hope he (laughs) lives a happy life. I mean, presumably those children have been resurrected on Krakoa, which helps take the sting out a little bit. But he still still killed them real bad. Um... Yeah, so that would be a good book for her, I think. I've been, I've said like that Krakoa needs a therapist, and I laughed off the idea of it being Husk because I hadn't revisited the Christina Strain book since it came out. And now that I have revisited, I'm like, okay, actually, she did pull the character back from the brink enough that it would make sense. Very much so. I kept suggesting that Nurse Annie would be a really funny therapist to have on like she could be because her son's a mutant so you could have she's in orcas right now i don't think (laughs) (laughs) see i actually i will say like as awful as the havoc and annie plot is the arc that she has 
from hating mutants because her abusive ex-husband was a mutant to calling Bobby out on being prejudiced against visible mutants is actually pretty cool. Like she mm-hmm. has kind of a growth arc and it's interesting, but like the character is a flop. So like you can't, you can only do so much. I, uh, but no, I just thought it would be funny to like bring her back and have her like be a therapist, especially because like if Alex has to go to therapy and the therapist is Nurse Annie, that would be really funny to me. But <laughs> then you find out she's not actually a therapist at all. And she's just like, what are you doing? She's like, I just had to see you again. Alex. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking like she, you know, she went and got like her MSW or something sure, in the sure. interim, you know, but Husk would be a great character to do that with. And they do need, I mean, we've seen therapy data pages in Hellions. Mm-hmm. We don't know who's writing them. Yeah. And I think that it would be cool to just like casually reveal that Husk yeah. is their it therapist. Like they give like everything to Cecilia Reyes, but yeah. Yeah, but Cecilia Reyes is not a psychiatrist, right, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. you know? So but I don't know. I'll be interested to see what kind of like gaps there are when whatever happens in January. We're about to have a huge shakeup of the line, clearly. Yeah. So who knows what books will even exist come mm-hmm. February? I am expecting a lot of roster shakeup. And I wouldn't be shocked if characters we haven't considered very much, like Husk, pop up somewhere because the line gets reconfigured. Yeah. You know, so in terms of the books that exist right now, I don't think outside of like a supporting role in Hellions, there's really anywhere to put her. Mm -hmm. But I think that the rest of Reign of X could go so many different directions. So I would say like, don't lose hope, basically, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And uh, just one more, like, uh, I liked when you were talking with, so talking about playing up the class angle and it's like I yeah wanna see i want to see Paige take on fracking <laughs> it's like i don't know sure. if that's something that goes on in kentucky yeah yeah but. and like i would like to see her what i said in that episode was like this is something i also think they should do with colossus like krakoa is a socialist enterprise at least within the island itself it has like a state apparatus that is capitalist with x-corp and things like that but that's mostly to take money from humans to then fund like socialist utopia on it's very starfleet mm-hmm. is sort of how i see it i just think that if we're going to have a scarcity free money free society that colossus who was introduced as a communist and husk who is like a working class kind of union gal type person would be interesting characters to see spearheading some of those domestic efforts. Mm-hmm. So that's another place that I think you could put her. But again, that's not a starring role in a sure. team book. You know, that's a prestige maxi series. That is a Husk <laughs> prestige maxi series, precisely. So, you know, we'll see. Kisi Amaral writes, Connor, Karen, every question I piece together somehow devolves into some variation of why do you hate Paige, Connor? The people want to know. I know. Trying again for one of my favorite mutants who just can't seem to keep her skin on. Gen X will always be my team of young mutants, being Gen X myself. Every young team of mutants since has failed to capture my attention. The new mutants in X-Force were the cool older kids I wanted to be like, but Gen X were the kids I was. The body horror aspect of their powers so accurately and creatively served as a metaphor for puberty and trying to be comfortable in your skin as it shredded off, sagged off, or was blown off to reveal a giant blowing chest cavity. Well, my primary question is still, why do you hate Paige, Connor? My secondary question is, has there been a more creatively configured team in comics since Gen X? Their powers were diverse yet centered in theme and so visually interesting when rendered by Bocciolo. I can explain why each character's power set fit the mission statement of the book, but I won't. Since Gen X, it seems like mutant powers are either too bland, too random, or too abstract. Where have all the good powers gone? All the best. I think that that is nostalgia talking a little bit. 
I don't disagree that it's a cool assemblage of powers and that the like freakish body horror puberty metaphor is really strong in that book. Yeah, it was just like the time, like you. Yeah, it was the nineties. We were like, like crawling Academy in X my skin. These wounds will not yeah, yeah. heal, etc. You know, like. But I do think that the Hellion Squad in Academy X was similarly interesting. That's why they were like the ones who stuck around. Literally, they were the like rivals. And then they ended up being the characters who actually stuck. Because you look at Mercury, Dust, Rockslide. These are characters with cool visual powers. Like literally when I wasn't reading X-Men, like around that time period, I like saw, I think it would have been like, Scotty Young cover with like all of them when they had like formed into like the main like yeah when they were the, like team, the new X Men like, team yeah okay this looks cool like I would read this yeah because they got rid of almost they got rid of like <laughs> most of the characters who were supposed to be our protagonist they kill off Wallflower and Icarus they depower Prodigy and Wind Dancer and Prodigy much like Storm becomes more interesting after you depower him so he sticks around I you know I'm glad he's been repowered but I do think that that power is a tricky one to work into stories. And I think it made sense for him to be like the one who gets decimated, but hangs out because he was really mm-hmm. smart. And Wind Dancers back in X-Corp, like those characters have been rescued a little bit. But at the time, almost that entire squad gets wiped out. There were like so many of them. Like they weren't, like I was looking at the like wiki of like who was on that class. And it's just like, I've never heard of this. Well, you liked my little visual charts I make for like how to map out future episodes. The Academy X section of that document is like so many characters. I literally was like, who the fuck is this? And I had to like Google it. I was like, who is, what are you talking? Who is Match? I don't remember this character at all. Some people get introduced in like a side book that like doesn't even get referenced. Yeah, and then frankly, the characters who originally got focused get totally overlooked because Pixie and X-23 become the stars of that generation. Mm -hmm. And like armor comes in from the Whedon book. So really all of those Weir and DeFilippis characters kind of get fucked. I think there's room for... It would just be hard not to overlap with New Mutants, but I think that there is room for an Academy X title that's more generally about the youth of mm-hmm. I think you could call it Generation X. Like it's not yeah. literally Gen X anymore, but they're the generation of the House of X, right? What I'm so- liking is like Vita is like has this like little squad of like mostly like trans queer yeah which is awesome like these new characters from prison constantly X. waiting for more from them well they said that um brother nature and uh leo have an arc coming up that, so that's um, exciting because that was like um you know prisoner x was like by far in my opinion like the best book of age of x-men oh without question yeah and like coming out of that seeing those characters in this reality is so that's the thing too is i really would like to see vita write bishop in the main reality and i feel like we've had like the war college set up as like a thing that's been mentioned Mm -hmm. the bishop is involved with and i feel like that could be a like generation x could be about like bishop training the kids at war college or like that's an that's someplace you could take new mutants is like have bishop kind of come in but yeah. i get that vita's emphasis right now is having the new mutants characters become yeah. mentors so i you know and that that book has like a hundred anybody characters can in it like already, do so. it well it's like i mean it's one of my favorites if not my favorite there was a really funny exchange during all of the like hickman is leaving the sky is falling stuff yesterday on twitter 
people who were like, everybody relax. We're talking about how many great writers there are on the line. And um, someone said to me, they were like, I mean, if Vita Ayala wrote the manual for the International Confederacy of Tractor Owners, I would suddenly be like, wow, I guess I'm a tractor stan. You know, I was like, yeah. And then someone replied, it was like, if T.D. Howard wrote the blurbs on shampoo bottles, I would collect them. And I was like, that's cute. That's funny. Because like, you know, I really do think that this is a real murderer's row talent. It's really good stuff. So yeah, I mean, again, I think it will take, basically someone will have to be interested in Paige and and use her somewhere. As for why I, I hate Paige, I don't hate Paige. Paige is funny because the Austin run is funny. And that is really the biggest spotlight she's ever gotten. And talking about the Austin run is hilarious. And so I enjoy clowning on Paige because those stories are so bad. And then she's literally written as a joke throughout all of Wolverine and the X-Men. Right. And that I hate because I found the plot sexist. So that is not about her. That's just about like, it's the only other really big plot she's ever had after Gen X. And I found it gross. So there's that. I also just, her power gives me the willies. It just does. It freaks me out. I don't like looking at her, ripping her chest open. It's just like, it, it makes me, here's what it is. I, I, I'm thinking about it. I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And one of the things about OCD that is not really shown in media, because OCD in media tends to be like, I wash my hands all the time or whatever, is intrusive thoughts, which are, in my opinion, the worst and most mm-hmm. debilitating part of OCD, which is you will have, it's just misfires happening in your brain, but you will have these wild thoughts like, I should jump off this bridge or like I should drive my car into the lake or I should put this knife in my eye or whatever. That's the part that makes you feel really, really crazy. And being told by a therapist like, oh, no, that's just a symptom of OCD. And like, you don't actually want to do any of those things was extremely liberating for me as a teenager. But it's hard to to convince yourself. I don't like holding sharp objects because I'll have an intrusive thought about like hurting myself with them. And I'm not someone like and I'm not this is not to shame anybody who does but like I'm not someone who has ever like self-harmed but I can't stop thinking about it if I'm holding like a knife so mm-hmm. something about I think Paige's power being like literally self-harm that's really visceral and like tears her skin open just really fucks with like my particular mental illness <laughs> I think that's sure. really what it is at the end of the day and that's a me problem, not a page problem. So she should just tear herself to pieces as much as she wants and I'll deal with it. Just like I'm dealing with iBoy. I fucking hate iBoy because oh, looking yeah. at iBoy makes me feel physically uncomfortable. <laughs> but And I'm sure you're not the only person probably like, for not. those reasons or others. But I feel like for me, like one thing I wanted to say is like on top of like the cool factor, it's just like there's something very, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like aspirational about Paige's powers, like be able to just like rip it off and just like be whatever you like put your mind to. That well, sounds yeah. very convenient and lovely. And it's like, it would be nice to be able to do that sometimes. I can see how for a lot of people that would be an extremely liberating fantasy. It's like, I was just listening to uh, Stephanie Burt on the uh, Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, A Wow podcast talking about um, just like Kitty Pride. She doesn't consider Kitty or Kate to be trans, but her power is very trans. And like, that's how I feel about Paige. Yeah. 
she talked about that in the episode we did about right, Kate yeah, yeah, on this yeah. show also. And that's exactly what I was just thinking, as you said it, like that makes perfect sense that if you have dysphoria or something like that, this character who can literally just rip all her skin off mm-hmm. and have a new body that's the body she wants. As opposed to all the other hoops or like right. whatever medications you have to go. I totally get that being something that would appeal it's actually, fun. I mean, like we're getting like real per- it's like therapy podcast now, but it's like trigger warning actually, because like this might upset like for eating disorders and for like self-harm. Cause I just want to like blanket, open that up before, like if, skip ahead, you know, a couple minutes if you can't deal with that. And I completely understand. Right. That's to the listeners. I don't mean you, obviously we're sitting here talking, but if you don't want to talk about it, let me know. I can't control it. Connor. No, I know you can't control it. It just keeps going. The show won't stop. <laughs> Connor just keeps talking. No, so I spent much of my life very overweight. Um, I I, I didn't even like that word. Very fat. I was a fat person. And I had a lot of self-loathing about it. I was treated poorly by the people around me, not like my family or anything, but just like, you know, by the world. And I would fantasize about like one of the intrusive thoughts I had a lot when I would be holding a knife or a scissor or something would be like, I'm just going to like cut my stomach like off and like throw it away, you know? Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of not gender dysphoria, but dysphoria about my body generally. So when you frame it that way, I absolutely see the fantasy of Paige. And I think that part maybe of why it makes me so uncomfortable is because I recognize that desire. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, I did eventually end up for health reasons that are complicated. I'm not going to get into having bariatric surgery and losing a lot of weight. I guess I did husk, mm. you know, and I am happier yeah. now. And that's not to I'm, I, I would never push that on anybody. You know, I'm a body positive person. I think that if you're fat and you're happy and fulfilled, like that is fantastic. I never got there, you know, mm-hmm. so not to get maudlin, but I think maybe that's part of it for me is that. Yeah could see that it connects in like my lizard brain to some of my more self-destructive thoughts that Mm -hmm. really tormented me when i was a teenager and so hearing that people related to Paige as a teenager doesn't surprise me at all i think that it was just too close to things that i didn't want to think about yeah that makes sense i feel like for me i kind of like the flavor it kind of like took in terms of like dysphoria or whatever it was just kind of like just wanting to sort of like fade into the background and just like not even like be just sort of like be like a floating ghost almost which is kind of like what husk kind of does which is what stephanie says about kitty yeah Yeah, and it is what husk does in the narrative eventually right and even in the beginning like in the child's place story she kind of like is able to like basically turn into a tree and it's just like hiding and like observing things that are going on but um, and like reading her, like there's that issue where they like get together for it's either Thanksgiving or Christmas. All the girls talking about their first time with the powers and just like showing how much like Paige just like wanted to like be the person and like the being that she like do in her like soul. It's just like I know I'm the a mutant. And it's just yeah, like, God, just like give it to me, or I'm gonna like rip my skin off. Well, that that flashback—that's actually we haven't talked about that. It's interesting. She has that flashback to when her power is activated, and it's a lot like 
every now and then there's a manifestation that's very convenient. It feels almost mm-hmm. directed. And in this case, like she says, right. if I don't manifest my power soon, I'm going to tear my skin off. And then her skin tears off. The fact that she instinctively knows that or maybe even like subconsciously chose Mm-hmm. To manifest that power is very interesting. It's akin to like we see powers manifest to save people's lives, like, like skids or, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, but Ileana is the other one I often think about where it's like her mutant power is to control the stepping discs of limbo. That doesn't really make sense. <laughs> Would that have been her power if she wasn't trapped in limbo? I don't know. Or was she drawn to Limbo in the first place because her mutant power connected her to this other dimension? Like, that's a question, right. existentially chicken and egg, that I think mm-hmm. is really interesting with Ileana. Yeah, and similarly, it's like, did Paige think of that metaphor because she could feel herself molting? Or right. did Paige start molting because that was the, like, passionate thought she had? I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. Yeah. It's also funny bringing up Ileana because, like, also another one of my favorite characters and i think also because of generation next like the age of apocalypse she was like yeah. the main figure and this was a as time a child when, yeah. yeah she was just like gone from the main reality well, right was she was like, dead one of the big things that's so upsetting about the end of aoa is Ilyana and destiny yeah having to and who else there's someone else the people who've died in the main timeline having to accept that if they repair the timeline, they'll cease to exist. And it's like a really distressing yeah. moment. And they all decide that it's worth doing it. Like they mm-hmm. all decide that they're willing to sacrifice themselves to save the rest of the world. And it's a very heroic moment. Yeah. Lewis Wilkes writes, Hi, Connor. Love the pod. And so glad to finally see some more Gen X appreciation. I feel very strongly about the lesser seen Guthrie. So here are a few questions. Take your pick. And I am going to take my pick. I've always found the Guthrie sibling dynamic fairly ill-defined. They seem to only have relationships when it suits them. What role do you see Paige having in this mutant clan? If Sam's the responsible one, Jay's the artistic one, Joelle is the um, complicated one, where does Paige fit in? Thanks for all that you do, Lewis, Adrienne Frost's husband on the Discord. That Discord username did make me laugh when I saw it because iconically, Adrienne Frost... This is, we're never, I don't think I'm getting to an Adrian Frost episode anytime soon. So this is just a great Gen X moment Say from late stage Gen X. <laughs> Adrian Frost has the power of psychometry, which means that she can read the history of objects when she touches them. There's this whole long shaggy dog story where she wants to get her hands on a sword that I think belonged to her late right. husband. Yeah. That's a fun story. It turns out at the very end that the reason she wants it is because she hired a hitman to murder her husband with his own sword. And she wants to experience his last moments because she despised him. It's a very (laughs) funny characterizing moment for her. She is a true over-the-top camp villainess in a way that I I am desperate to have someone fuck with Emma by moving Adrienne up the resurrection protocol queue. I think it would be really funny to have her pop back up on Krakoa. She's got a great hat. Great hat. Loves a hat. Great statement earrings. Yes. You know, great boob job (laughs) when she pops back up as the white queen. Runs in the family. Yeah, I mean, clearly she like read Emma's purse and found some receipts or something (laughs) and went to the same surgeon because... The titties were sitting. But anyway, as for your question, (laughs) I think that the way to go would be to 
position Paige as sort of the matriarch, the young matriarch of this family in the way that Sam initially was thrust into the role of young patriarch for the family. Sam's off in space now. He has a child and wife of his own. Like he's not in that nuclear family of his birth anymore to the same extent. And I think that Paige nurturing Jay and Melody and hey, let's have Lizzie manifest her Amazon powers. Like yeah. have these characters show up, have is it Jeb Jed? I can't ever remember his fucking name. It's Jeb. Jeb Jebediah, right? It was like, is it Jebediah or Jedediah, right? So you know, um, but he, like, have him show, have her be taking care of her siblings, not in like a karma way where it forces her out of the narrative, but in a way where like you know, Apocalypse cited that the Guthries are a proud uh, dynasty at this point An because issue. yeah, so like so let. Paige be the one directing that family to some extent because totally. I want to see more of Melody. Melody's problem is that her power is like not remarkable because lots of people can fly and then do right. other things. Yeah, you don't even have wings. Yeah, I know. It's like at least Warren has cool wings that are visual. Not to bring him up again. Sorry. No, but it's true. Like because Warren got fully outmoded by Storm, but at least the visual of the wings is cool, right? right? I will say, I think that much like with Everett and other characters like Cecilia Reyes has talked about how resurrection sometimes levels up the power, you could give Melody something else. Like maybe she can fly at super speeds. Like that would be mm. a way to take it. Maybe. She also needs a new code name because while she was decimated, they gave Arrow to that Chinese superheroine who's like a new character who's around. So yeah, she's like with the Agents of Atlas. She was in... Uh, um, oh, right. She had a book. Yeah, she was in also the uh, Cy Spurrier did that King in Black tie-in with Black Knight. Oh, that was yeah, very yeah. funny to kick off Ebony Blade. And mm -hmm. she was in that and was, was fun in that. I'm not super familiar with her, but I enjoyed her. Yeah, anyway, point is, codename's taken. So they need to give Melody something else. And I think that you should also like power her up. And then I think like Icarus and Melody and Jeb, Jeb and Jeb. Whatever his fucking name is. You know is. what? They should make uh, Melody and Jay do like a, a Penance Twin sort of thing where they can <laughs> to one flying <laughs> being. <laughs> I mean, notably, when Sam was on the Uncanny, the Extreme Sanctions executive, when yeah, Claremont yeah, yeah. went back for Reload, there's that whole sequence where like, Melody and Jay are so annoying because they keep like courting right, yeah. press and whatnot. And Sam's like, stop! <laughs> So you could do fun things with Paige and her, her siblings, I think. Especially, like, I would love to see Icarus's relationship with Dust come back. I think that was really interesting. And I think Dust is a character who deserves more attention. I really liked her little bit in Way of X, but I'd love to see her, you know, doing something more significant yeah, with, definitely. like, a Muslim writer, preferably. And I think that, because what I've heard is that the plan, well, we'll get into this in an Icarus episode, but I think that relationship is interesting. I think like there's lots of interesting stuff you can do with the family. And I think that Paige should be the big sister at this point yeah. because she's outgrown being Sam's little sister in the same way that Sam has outgrown being a big brother and is now a husband and father. So that's totally. sort of where I would take it. Also, Joelle should be an Orcus because that would be fun. It would just be cool. That should be the mission is you got to like rehash. It's like you're fucking up again. We got to go talk to you. Yeah. And, but the stakes are much higher. Much now. higher. Because the first time when they were like, Joel, these people hate mutants. They want to kill us. It's not just about human pride. And she was like, oh, no. And like left. 
but in the time since she should be like radicalized and now be like I want a, a, a swivel chair moment at Orcus where it's like Ms. Guthrie hello what have you heard about your that'd siblings be so good. that'll be the main uh, that'll be the first arc of this whatever Generation X like new volume will be that's really compelling like being yeah. the human daughter of this mutant dynasty who resents everyone around you is oh a God. great that's a great character that they've not done this anything with since that story so yeah on yeah. it on it let's do it everybody let's let's make it happen Adam Henderson writes, hi, Connor and Karen, huge fans of both of you and was so excited to hear Karen would be on the show. They're the reason I read Gen X in the first place and also caused my love for the Eternals. Well, that sounds like a rough ride. Um, Although, I mean, you got Kieran writing that book now and that book's fucking It's really good. I mean, Kieran's great. So what do you think held Husk back from becoming more popular despite having a quite cool and unique power? Even compared to Chamber, she never even gets background or guest roles that often. And those guest roles tend to just be a new creepy romance. Was it the Chuck Austin treatment or just having too many Guthries to choose from? Thanks, Adam. P.S. I'm from Northern Ireland if you want to attempt a new accent. I was charmed by that note. I am absolutely not going to attempt a Northern Irish accent because my regular Irish accent for someone who is like a 65, 70% Irish in 23andMe terms is atrocious enough mm. to begin with. <laughs> and Northern Ireland is a very distinctive kind of like the six counties has kind of a distinctive yeah. accent. And I, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. It's like when I did the Pixie episode and I like watched a how to do a Welsh <laughs> accent video. And after about 10 seconds, I was like, this is not happening. I do like that you spelled my name with one N, which is incorrect, but is very of the motherland. So to be honest, I always need to double check. <laughs> so so here's the thing. Two N's is more commonly a surname and it is a family name in my family. And that's why it's two N's. Hmm. So like one N, two N's is fine. Where I have a problem is E-R because that's not how Gailga works. Like that's not <laughs> Irish. Like that's American bullshit. And like we're all American here, I guess, but you know, don't spell your name Connor. It's not. That's not how. <laughs> it's a Connor... profession of some kind. Yeah, exactly. That's someone who. That's like a professional con artist. That's Connor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and no offense to any Connors listening, I just think your name is spelled wrong. But you know what? Go with God. <laughs> <laughs> not trying to be mean. Part of it is like resentment because when I was a kid, because so I'm born in 1988. Connor is not that popular a name in America. And then in the 90s, there was that Irish name trend of like Connor, Aiden, Liam, all of those got really popular. And Connor became like this very widespread spelling. And so when I was a kid, if you wanted to like go to one of those like tchotchke shops and get something with your name on it, it was always spelled Connor. And so I was like, never, there was never a thing for me. I know. Now, in reality, it should be spelled Konkovar. With like a ch and a bh in the middle so you know i'm not trying to be <laughs> superior but anyway that's my connor spelling discourse so to answer your question um this is a this is a loose episode much like um husk's loose disgusting skin you know it's, that yeah. she leaves around um you know it like did, not it, like disintegrates within 30 seconds okay but that point. one time she left it sitting at the table i'm sorry that was that was fucked she up. was going through a time she was going it through it i get it i get it no it's it wasn't continuity uh, <laughs> so she was being influenced by the 1 million bc avengers at the time exactly. um so here's the thing uh i think that the answer is 
her power is cool, but visually it's not as striking as someone like Chambers because she has to be in the act of husking for you to like point at her and go, it's husk. Like, for example, Mercury was in Children of the Atom in a cameo, and there was this huge debate over whether it was Mercury or husk because the colorist made a mistake and colored her as husk, but it's very clearly Mercury's costume and hairstyle. So... I think on the Marvel wiki, it's like listed as Husk, who just like decided <laughs> to wear funny. Mercury's costume that day. But the I, point is like somebody like addressed that on Twitter. It's like, I guess that's <laughs> what it is now. What are you going to do? Right? right. So, yeah, I mean, that'll happen. But my point is the fact that Husk can be put into a comic by accident via a coloring error means that she's not like chamber or armor or pixie who are characters we've talked about before where they're so visually dynamic that you could put them in group shots all this the is time why you give her big ears <laughs> <laughs> all guthrie should have big ears in my right. opinion like they should all just have like russell tubby ears going on yes. <laughs> so i think there's that i think also like frankly gen x was just not as popular a book as its reputation i think would lead you to believe I think it has a really devoted cult following that has grown over the years. But I think that when that book ended, the perception was basically, we can junk these characters now. And like Joe Casey wanted to use Chamber and Peter David wanted to use Monet, but that was years later. Yeah. So, you know, I think that saved those characters and everyone else, even Jubilee, got basically thrown in the trash. I think that that is part of it. But I also do think that, yeah, like, you know, Karen said this earlier, there are like 50 blonde women in this franchise. So like it gets really hard, like when uh, the Dodsons are on the book to tell between who's Husk and, and who's Emma. Emma? Yeah, right. exactly. Which is crazy. even like Bacala when he comes back after being away, he, it starts to get loose and the colorist isn't like differentiating their hair enough. So it's not great. But that's the, that's the Emma and Saturnine problem. I keep I know. saying, I'm like Saturnine. Just you got to get the hair right. She needs her white hair back, guys. And it's one eye is always covered. That they're getting. That yeah, at least, like Marcus Toe gets the assignment on that. Well, he gets everything. Oh, he's brilliant. So the good. Veronica Lake moment is always happening with the hairstyle, mm-hmm. but it's so yellow and her hair yeah. has just never been that color. I'm sorry. This is the 50th time I've talked about this. I confronted Jordan White on this podcast about Saturday Night's hair color, so I should let it go. <laughs> I could he- I could feel the sweat coming through my headphones. <laughs> <from> him, <laughs> just like, oh, no. Oh, no, no. <laughs> the funniest part of that episode is actually when I just like begin instinctively my Madeline Pryor defense attorney routine <laughs> to him because like the Hellions plotted recently. That was like happened. fresh. Yeah. It was real fresh in my in my heart and soul. But yeah, so I think it's really that simple. I think it's that like the Gen X class got kind of junked generally and then she isn't that visually distinctive. And then yeah, there were a lot of Guthries and you'll notice they got rid of all the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's I don't know. My take is um Going back to Lovedell's like inability to like plan long term, the book starts amazing. I feel like, in my opinion, those first three issues of Gen X are like perfect. They're like so good. It's amazing. It's like, wow, this is great. I can't wait to keep reading. And then Baklo leaves. I think he like does um death, time of your life, vertigo. Yeah. And they bring in all these other people and they start going to like fairylands and like doing all this stuff. And it's like, what the hell is happening? It loses all of its momentum. And then it doesn't really recover exactly, even though it like goes up and down in quality. And then it's just like, 
a zeitgeist thing. It like wasn't in the cultural moment anymore to mm-hmm. have like a Gen X book. And it was just like part of it is that the title dated really fast. Yeah. Because when the book came out, they were Gen X kids, mm-hmm. you know, but that's fine. Like, whatever. It doesn't have to be literal. The X stands for 10. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're Generation 10. Listener Brubot also wrote in with sort of a similar question. He says, like, as you know, I've been loving the podcast, especially lately as you chat about more obscure characters like Bling that I know very little about. My question is about my favorite Gen X character, Husk, who may seem obscure to new readers. Paige was the protagonist of Phalanx Covenant and was given a major role in Gen X and was probably the breakout star of the popular AOA counterpart, Gen Next. I loved her storyline of always wanting to be an X-Man, taking after her older brother. It showed so much promise. I'll admit I stopped reading comics for a while when I started college in 1999. I didn't get back into them until the Morrison era, but I don't really understand how the character fell from grace so quickly. When I saw her next, she was in that very weird relationship with Toad. Was it really Austin that ruined the character with the bizarre angel storyline? It's disappointing that the character fell into such disrepute, but I was excited that Hickman had her as initial team in Hawksbox. Here's hoping the X-Office has something in store for her. Actually, I feel like that nails it. It's the Morrison. It's like the whole line completely was transformed. Yeah. It's like there's not a place anymore. Yeah. And the Gen X kids were like in X Corporation in the background if they were anywhere. Right. Like even Monet is in the background for a while until Peter mm-hmm. David plucks her out for X Factor Investigations. Yeah, it was Austin. I mean, it really was. If you weren't reading at that time... The experience of being an X-Men fan during the Chuck Austin run was singular. It was truly like a remarkable time. We all could not believe what was happening month to month. Like it would just, the book kept coming and this was uncanny X-Men because Morrison had made new X-Men, the new flagship, but the book called uncanny X-Men was written by Chuck Austin and was insane every month. Like something truly insane would happen And Husk, I think, became emblematic of that run. Like, she was sort of the POV character a lot of the time. And she kind of, like, ends it by, like, you know, riding off into the sunset with the other Gen X characters after they bury the last of their fallen brethren. God, that's actually early, even. Because it's, um, that's the Holy War Mm storyline. Like, you know, it's just that once she and Angel are together, it's actually a lot like Jean-Paul, who is really focused on in the beginning of Austin's run. And then once the Bobby plot has run its course and it's like Bobby's not going to reciprocate, Jean-Paul just falls into the background. Similarly, like once Husk and Angel are officially together, she doesn't do much. Yeah. Oh, you're right. That's before Lies with Angels. So, yeah. But before, but like, it really, it literally is She Lies with Angels because she became a joke. I mean, that is one of the most infamous scenes in the history of Marvel Comics, much less the X-Men franchise. And she is the one getting pounded in the sky. The only reason that that didn't kill Warren, too, is that he's like a Lee Kirby Silver Age character. Like, you can't get rid of those characters. They always come back. But he was very backgrounded for a while, too. Until, like, X-Force, right? yeah. When they made him Archangel again, in part, I think, to wash off the Austin stink. It's like, look, he doesn't remember any of that, and you shouldn't either. <laughs> just, yeah, no. exactly. Like, it really was, it was a lot like Havoc and Polaris, who I think were really in a bad place after the Austin run, even though I find Austin's Polaris really entertaining. Because she at least has, like, a you know, stuff going on, which Lorna rarely does. I actually think that 
the way Jerry is writing her on the new X-Men book is sort of like the perfect synthesis of Leah's X-Factor take and the Chuck Austin Lorna, who's like wacky in a fun way. I'm very <laughs> it's, into... It's really good. Yeah. It's, it's just fun. It's like, this is yeah, kind of it's fun, so fun that X-Men books should be. So yeah, it truly was Chuck Austin. It was like a nuclear bomb put in that character's pants that just she couldn't escape. No matter how much she husked, like she was just constantly to fans regarded as that character, like the, the symbol of that terrible story. But despite that, she like still stayed kind of like in the periphery. She never yeah. like really totally disappeared. Just like like we were talking about like Claremont and Carrie really like kept her around. It's like, yeah, sure. She's fun. Why not? Because I think that writers really did like her and wanted to give it, you know, a shot. But I, I think that for fans, she really was like a character where it was like, we don't need to see this character for a while. Yeah. Brev Tanner writes, hello, Connor. Oh, man, the Guthries. What a family. Who would have thought that, that family would produce so many mutants? How long will it be before Ma Guthrie and the Brood Queen go at it in some epic duel to protect their babies? I'm not overly familiar with Husk, but when thinking about her, what is the upper limit of her powers? When she husks out, does she have to be a solid? What about a liquid or a gas or plasma or some other energy? The RPG nerd in me is seeing her turning into energy, getting absorbed by Bishop, and then he never runs out of energy to use. Almost a Rogue and Carol thing, but with a different dynamic. Sam. Thanks for the show. That's a cute idea. Actually, that's what Bishop did with his sister Shard in like the last Shard story. Because Shard, I mean, his sister was actually dead, but he recreated her as a holographic. Yeah. So like she's made of photons and to like save the day, she convinces him like you need to kill me and absorb all my energy. Uh, and it's really fucked up. And then, by the way, it accomplishes nothing. So it's kind of a, <laughs> kind of a bummer. I love Shard. I also love Shard. I would like to see her come back. So that's the thing. Coming into the X-Men in the mid to late 90s, you're just like stuck with this love for these weird for these characters, characters who that will people never don't care be because seen they're again. not Claremont. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, <sighs> forever pining. <laughs> so as for Husk and her powers, she doesn't have to be a solid, but she usually needs to be like a semi-solid, except in AOA where she could do like vapor and stuff. <sighs> see it so bad the fact of the matter is it just depends on the writer she has the kind of power where you can do whatever you want and just justify it in the story so it depends i don't like when she turns into non-solid stuff because there shouldn't be a layer under that it doesn't make sense but like how do you unhusk from a gas that doesn't make sense to me that's my hot take because when you you push the molecules they solidify and then you can grab but where does the skin come? I don't, I'm sorry. You know, it's a chemical reaction with nope. oxygen. Who knows? It's Absolutely mutants. not. I don't accept it. I refuse. Willow Callahan writes, hello, Connor and Karen, longtime listener and Discord annoyance, first time caller. Also a big fan of Karen's. One of my good friends has gotten great commissions from them a few times, mm. and I just love all of their work in general. Husk is someone I've had mixed feelings on, mostly because of my love for Chamber with their messy romance that I'm not particularly fond of. You took Chamber's side? <laughs> I know! Wild, right? It takes a village. We love you. <laughs> also... Also, I've just never gotten over the first issue of Gen X where she says that husking is a suitable substitute for showering. I forgot about that. She does say that. And that is foul, Paige. What a time to bring that up. Yeah. Well, listen, okay. That's you can't be the one white girl on the team and not shower. (laughs) 
that is embarrassing for all white people. Don't like, be that. Whatever person. you do, you're gonna get dragged out of your mouth. Embarrassing. We talk about queer head cannons a lot online and on the pod, but when I was thinking about Husk, she strikes me as remarkably heterosexual. Even though original Gen X is one team that I could easily be convinced we're all a fun, free love polycule, Paige just doesn't give me the gay vibes. Any thoughts? Also, this might negate the fact that I think she's straight, but Paige also gives off theater kid energy. What are some roles that you think Paige would play? And should she be the one to bring theater to Krakoa? Sorry, this is messy and rambly. LOL, Will. She did teach literature. (laughs) She did, and history of mutant art. Right. Which is funny because that can't be a very long history, right? Like, is she teaching about Jumbo Carnation and Rhapsody? No, she else? she actually reads a poem by Maggot. Oh, yeah. Is, oh, to Eni and Meanie. I only know this because I just looked through Yeah, because you just reread it. You know what? Maggot is also a character. I they should do lo- something. When about. he was introduced, I was like, this is my new favorite character. He's going to be around forever, and I'm so happy. I've never particularly cared about Maggot, but I think that conceptually the idea of a mutant from south africa is interesting given the nation state building stuff that we're doing right now and like the idea of a minority nation state. i mean genosha was very clearly a south africa allegory mm-hmm. right down to the mutants eventually taking power there mm-hmm. so i think that that would be a cool character to have in the metaphor so they should do something with him also i think that maggot should be or is trans so oh well listen i Why mean not? Truly, why not? And anything to make a character I don't care about more interesting, I'm always for. As your question, truly, it is wild to me, especially having like just reread a lot of this material that anyone would side with Chamber in the Chamber and Husk Same. storyline. But love that for you. You've expressed that before in the Discord, I think. So I, <laughs> I'm not shocked, but it is a little wild to think about. Bottom line, I agree that Husk feels pretty hetero to me. She is one of those rare X-Men characters that feels trapped in hetero hell. Yeah, I feel the exact same. She also does have theater kid energy, though. I think that she would be really funny doing like Shakespeare because she would try to do like an accent. (laughs) And so it'd be like her thick Kentucky accent she's failed to kill, but like doing British which would be fun. That would be entertaining. She could do like much ado about nothing or something. The problem is that once you start talking about mutant art and theater, all I want to do is pitch a Lady Mastermind series. So, you know, that's my eternal dilemma. But why not have Husk and uh, the Ladies Mastermind start a little theater troupe together? That could be fun. Illusions, babe. (laughs) Also, like, Husk's power is a really great practical effect for... Mm -hmm. She honestly, honestly, Husk should become a horror movie actress. Yeah. She yeah. should become a scream queen. Bring and it like, back to the body horror. She's the next star of Cronenberg. Yeah. And she should be like making movies. Like X Corp should have an entertainment division. I've said this before, like where Dazzler <laughs> is putting out records and like Husk should become a movie star. That would be really funny. And it's like, oh my God, I ripped my face off. Like it would be, you know. The conversation of like mutant art and culture brings to mind, I don't know if you've read it, uh, Ritesh Babu, who writes for ComicsXF, wrote a really wonderful piece, kind of like about why he doesn't really jive. About why he doesn't like the X-Men, yeah. Yeah. Which is like an offensive ideal to me, but you know, it's fine to me. Here's how I feel about it. No, here's how I feel about it. I think Ritesh is one of the best critics at it right now. I also think that any person of color who finds the mutant metaphor... unsatisfying is perfectly entitled to have that opinion. Absolutely. 
Thomas Corbin writes, hi, Connor and Karen. First, thank you for the podcast. Connor, it's been such a welcome treat. Now on to more serious matters. Is Paige the Roxy Andrews of the mutant world? And what would you consider her wig under a wig moment with her tearaways? So if you're not a drag race person, listeners, Roxy was the first to do the wig reveal that reveals another wig underneath it during a lip sync, which was a big gas moment. Krakoa welcomes incorporated it into the wig reveal moment in the uh, Strife animatic with audio from the Strife episode. So Paige honestly is kind of like a stunt queen. She'll just like, like she shows up and it's just like, oop, now I'm like made of obsidian and I'm really sharp or like whatever. Like she's good at that. I can't think of like super specific examples, but I do always go back to that annual where they fight like those illusory ghost Hellions. And I remember her being like, I'm a diamond now. And it was like a big deal. Yeah. And that was cool. It's less cool now that Emma and the Cuckoos can do it. (laughs) And are also blonde. Like, you know, there's only like, she does kind of fall into that trap of like, other people can do this stage. Her super cool power up from Proteus was just that she can be magma. And it's like, we already have magma. We don't even like magma that much. I remember that, you know, she came in handy during Curse of the Mutants because she could turn into wood. Yes. (laughs) But... And actually, that wasn't even the Age versus like, Dracula would right. be fun. That would well, be Well, actually, there was uh, the 98 Gen X annual was a split with Dracula. It was like the year they were doing like two comics shared an annual. And it was yeah. like Chamber, I think, gets like vampirized. And like, I don't think Husk actually like does much, but it. I, I really truly like don't remember this that. story. I'm going to look it up. I remember the Monet fighting really vampires cool. in Switzerland. No, it's actually, yeah, it's this. before that. So, yeah. Who knew? So many vamp moments, so many <laughs> vampire moments for Gen X. I mean, like, M-Plate is a vampire the whole time. Like, they're just uh, constantly having vampire problems. I was so scared of, like, the concept of M-Plate. M-Plate's <laughs> terrifying! It's <laughs> scared. Especially once you find out it's his sister who he's, right. like, holding captive and feeding uh, on. That's so fucked up. Quinn Hester's writes, hi, Connor and Karen, huge fan of the podcast and your art, respectively. It's a semi-established part of X-Lore that when mutants use their powers on their siblings, the powers don't work. What I was wondering is, have we ever really seen this outside the Summers family? Like if Cannonball blasted full speed at Paige or Jay or any of the other hundred Guthrie children, would he just harmlessly bounce off of them? Does this power cancellation only apply if the sibling being attacked has an X gene? Like is Karma able to use her possession powers on her younger siblings? Thanks, Quinn slash X-Bricks. Oh, hi. I know you from Twitter. I love this question because I've never considered it before in my life. I sure have. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) here's the thing that's annoying about this motif. This used to be just a Summers family thing. It was one of the special things about their bloodline or whatever. Is it because of Sinister? No, but it was probably part of why Sinister was interested in their bloodline because it had like weird properties. It used to just be them. Then in Gen X... It was established Uh, that Emma and her sisters can't use their powers on each other, which really is a bummer for Emma specifically because Adrienne cheats because she uses her powers on objects. So she can read all of Emma's shit, but Emma can't read her mind. Now, I get why this was an appealing plot beat for Emma and Adrienne because Adrienne is plotting against Emma the whole time. And so you need Emma to not be able to read her mind. I didn't like how it, made the Summers thing less special because, frankly, Mr. Sinister's fascination with the Summers bloodline has never made an enormous amount of sense. And so, like, taking out things... He just thinks they're neat. Yeah, but, like, you know, like, he's like, 
the potential of Jean Grey, the Cyclops. It's like, well, Jean, I get. Yeah. But like Scott, he shoots eye beams. Like, really? So I always get kind of bummed when like the unique things about that family are downplayed or diluted. I similarly like I don't like that Rachel isn't an Omega level mutant anymore. That doesn't make she's the first character ever identified on page as an Omega level mutant in the 80s. So so much robbed from. Yeah. Yeah. She's constantly just getting fucked by it. (laughs) So, you know, but not by the ladies she would like to do it. So, you know, you know, they keep it private. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's happening just off panel. Hopefully that will change soon. So there have been in the time since characters where like because it became it's sort of like how Magneto's helmet now blocks telepathy because in the movies it did when in the comics that was Juggernaut. But now it's both of them because of the idea from Cyclops and Havoc or from Emma and her sisters that this is a true thing you see it more now with other characters occasionally. So there have been other, I can't think of like anyone off the top of my head right now, but it's happened a couple of times where like, it's now a thing. It is not, however, a universal mutant trait. I mean, like Lorna and Magneto can certainly magnetize each other. She usually gets her shit rocked because he's more powerful than she is. But we just saw that today in Trial of Magneto number one. Like mm-hmm. they can fight with their powers. So it's not universal. The idea of Sam harmlessly bouncing off one of his siblings is extremely funny, but I think he would probably just blast right through them and it make them explode like he did with the Inferno babies in the Zeb Wells run. Oh, actually, the one I, I just remembered who the other one was, and this one did actually make a lot of sense. It was Dazzler and her sister Mortis. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Mortis's power is to kill you by touching you. So if you're going to have her be a rival for Allie, it makes sense that Lois can't just kill her with a touch. Yeah. Right. Like, you know? But it also makes sense that, like, you know, Allie's a pretty powerful character, even though she doesn't always get the attention that she, I think, deserves. But, like, if her laser blasts, don't work on Mm -hmm. Lois. That also accelerates the drama. But yeah, it's something that has sort of, because people think it's true about all mutants, popped up in a lot of stories, but it's not actually supposed to be true about all mutants. That's how comics are. I'm just like, I keep picturing like Sam flying by Melody and she just like falls (laughs) out of the sky. (laughs) Because her power doesn't work in his (laughs) presence. right? Uh, Or like, yeah, Sam like flying into Paige to make her stop like revealing a new form. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> God, I can't. It's just regular skin now. <laughs> oh my God. They're like the idea, frankly, of Paige getting depowered at any point, like by like even if like Leech walked by. I mean, I guess he did. <laughs> it's, like X, but, like, it's like thank you, Leech. Like it's just like, oh, suddenly I'm like really exfoliating. Like it just all just peels right off like wallpaper. Gross. <laughs> Russ Zam writes, Hi Connor and esteemed guest. As someone who was an overachiever as a youth, I really identified with Paige during the Gen X days. Who wouldn't want to be thrown into the colorful world of mutantdom and all things X and strive to wring every last drop of experience out of it? Paige had the drive and the work ethic to succeed, even if her motivations for doing so weren't really something she examined too deeply. My question is, what do you think could be done to make Paige more explicitly the gifted kid who grew up and has to reckon with the fact that great grades and teachers' accolades don't translate into happiness or success? Monet, Jubilee, Jono, and Sink have all grown into prominent roles in the X-Teams, while Paige is still a little behind the curve. 
Her struggles with mental health, impeding, delaying, or altering her plans while her peers thrive is so effing relatable it makes me want to scream. Given COVID and life in general, I really feel for Paige and the seeming lack of support system she has. Sam is in space, Jubilee, Sink, and Monet are all busy, and Emma hardly ever interacts with the Gen X kids. Do you think Paige would find the most help in attaining some kind of peace or understanding in Jay and Melody, or maybe Angelo and Sean? Paige seemed to struggle as an educator, and personally, I'd like to see her try that role again. Support from Danny and Sean might see her flourish in that role. Or should she just start a YouTube channel about her unique skincare routines? Thanks for all you do. Huge fan of the community this podcast has created, and grateful for all the love and humor you inject with the world of X-Fans on a weekly basis. Russ, well, thank you. And he sent a picture of some custom Sam and Paige Legos, which are cute. We've touched on some of this already, but I think the way it's framed here is interesting, which is that specific framing of, like, she failed at what she set out to do, what story can you tell with that? That's not mm-hmm. just, and now she's in the background. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I feel like, I don't know, maybe I've like danced around it during the podcast, but um, yeah, I kind of feel like we got that story a little bit in like Generation X Volume 2. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it would be interesting to just like have somebody who, can write a story for her that isn't like drawing from the well of like the family stuff or like, you know, just like going back home again or being like the younger sibling or the older sibling or like, I'd like all of that, but I think it's also like somebody to like establish something new, like maybe not a YouTube channel, but mm-hmm. like uh, a TikTok. No, <laughs> just like she's too old for TikTok. I know. I mean, everybody's on TikTok now. I guess Um, I'm too old for TikTok is really what I mean. (laughs) I think that she absolutely like, again, I think that taking her to a political place would be a good way to go. I think that she should be a community leader, organizer type person. I want her to take on the games master again. And yes, we need a rematch. Realize that like, okay, we both had a lot of potential and maybe we didn't live up to it. Right. You know, Games Master, you in comparison really fucked it up. And, you know, maybe we can rehabilitate you now. Yeah, maybe that is the promise of Krakoa, right? Like, we're, I mean, you know, Monet and Celine had a little like girl boss day today mm-hmm. and it was great fun. I think that Husk and the Games Master, like, what if she helps him find the wife and children he forgot because of his power? Like, yeah. Part of Krakoa is like, looking at how many villains, mutant villains, are only villains because their power made them desperate or crazy. Mm-hmm. Games Master is certainly one of those. That doesn't justify his, like, megalomaniacal serial killing, but right. it, it does explain it to some extent. Sure. You know, I mean, I'm fascinated by characters like Celine and M-Plate because it's another chicken and egg thing. Like, if mm-hmm. you are a vampire because if you're a parasite because that's your power of course that's going to incline you towards seeing people as objects because they are your food i think something like that could be interesting that would just be a fun pull yeah i just feel like you know basically everything we're pitching here would like be fun i mean like we make the prestige maxi series joke but like i think a mini would be cute oh yeah i like like one to four issues like i feel like you could tell. she could even have a one shot so, yeah that's like i want to mm-hmm. see more of that also that's something okay. i would like to see in this line i mean leah williams burst onto the scene with what if magic and x and uh, black emma frost amazing. which were both incredible so- one shots i love a one shot 
that's really strong. And I would love to see more of those in the time of Krakoa. Yeah. So I'd love to see maybe like a giant sized husk. Like, totally. you know, I think that'd be cute. I also want to see her like take down like a fracking business run by the 616 version of Quietus from the AOA. Oh, that would be Because he's never shown up. Like, what's his power? Nobody yeah, knows. Yeah, what's his deal? He's, cool. he's purple. I haven't mentioned it. It's not in the character file because I don't do AOA in the character file. So I've said many times on this podcast that I don't, that I like, I really don't like the revisits of AOA that they oh did after the original event. And the number one reason, the number I'm one reason I don't totally like agree with you. Couldn't agree is with you because... One of the big things that they did right. in one of the revisits was retcon Husk's death at the yeah. end of Gen Next, she which is didn't die. And the best part like of super, AOA. It's like totally pointless. To and like also she's evil now. Ever. Right. They made her Zorn. When the twist is that you're Zorn now. It's never, I mean, the the one time that that, apart from the original reveal, the which is the really Adam. well done, is yeah, yeah. when Bendis has it be Jean. That's cool. But that's it. Otherwise, like, I don't need a Zorn reveal ever particularly anymore, unless it's like literally Zorn explaining why we should care about Zorn now that he's not Magneto. Which we got in Powers of Ten. Yeah. (laughs) So that was the only Zorn reveal we needed, right? They're fun in Way of X X right now. Speaking of names, though, to go back to the Anhalo and Xian and all that, one of the most egregious is when Chuck Austin was tasked with retconning who Zorn actually was once he couldn't be Magneto and named him Quan Yin, which is not only a woman's name because it's the name of a bodhisattva that's female. It's also the same name as Kanan. So that's a mess. and Someone should fix that, I think. At some point, like make it an alias because that does does not make a lick of sense. And it's confusing because you now have two characters named after the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, which I think is odd. I don't know if they're ever going to try and make sense. of I don't know either. That's like the role they seem to be in. It's just like, we're just mysterious. We're just here. And you know what? That's fine by me, frankly. Last question. Jimmy Jonathan Lee writes, Dear Connor and Karen, do you think Paige's romance with Chamber may have harmed the character due to readers of Gen X finding it overlong, overwrought, and kind of bland compared to other relationships, especially the love triangle of Monet, Everett, and Jubilee? I think that's an interesting question because certainly for me, I found the Paige and Jono plot exhausting whenever I checked into Gen X. It did go on for a while. I was just sort of like, I don't care about this. That was my Rogan Gambit problem. I was just like, this relationship is bad for you. Leave yeah. him. Like, it was not like, a, like a, you know? In the 90s, to be clear, don't scream at me, Romy people. <laughs> it, like, dragged on and kind of, like, it was given the space for them to kind of, like, figure out what was wrong with it and then come to a conclusion. But then it kind of, like, still hung around after that resolution And I feel, I do feel like that was kind of like the main reason potentially that like Hama didn't like Paige because it was like, oh, she's mopey and like not interesting. Right. Get her away. Hama actually said in his interview about Gen X where he like really dragged Scott Lobdell, which was very funny, like back when he took over the book, he was just like, frankly, the editors all think that more people will read the book if I make it good. (laughs) <laughs> which was funny. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he says. Yeah. 
he also says like they ask about Monet and why she's not like more traumatized about being penance. And he's like, because frankly, I find it boring when female characters have to suffer and cry and it's all about trauma. He's like, that's not interesting mm-hmm. to me. And the point of making Monet a real person instead of the twins is because we like Monet as a character. So why would I make her a boring character that I don't want to write? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it's possible he saw Paige as one of those yeah. types of characters and that she's always just sort of like, my relationship like that mm-hmm. is why i lost like i love rogue in the 80s i fall super hard out of love with rogue in the 90s because her whole plot became ramey i don't know yeah. what to do and i was like oh i hate this you know so mm-hmm. if that was why i i empathize yeah sure <laughs> i also think it didn't help her with fans because and this is this is anecdotal from like being in the fandom online. But I feel like Chamber was mostly like a character that Slash fandom got obsessed with. And I think that when you are the canonical female love interest for that character, you tend to like be ignored by the fandom, especially back then. It yeah, was like, totally. you know, early days. Especially if you're like a pretty blonde girl who's an overachiever, because that's mm-hmm. not always the character that... People just want you to die and go. Yeah, I mean, that's not, and this is, I'm talking about like female-driven fandom specifically, and that's not always, I mean, I talked about this in the North Star episode about how like gay men don't really like North Star generally in my experience because he is too hot, too rich. Like we get defensive or something or jealous, whereas like lots of gay men love Iceman or like fucking Anol because they're relatable, right? Like, and I don't get that because I'm mm-hmm. busy relating to Claremont goddesses, but that's <laughs> my struggle, you know? So yeah, that, I, I think it's very possible that it hurt them because it also made them a pair yeah. in that sort of like Rusty and Skids kind of way, except that like the relationship never went anywhere. Right. But they were such a pair that like every subsequent writer was just like, yeah, we have to address this. Right. Like, you know, like and then they pivoted them off in weird ways that just didn't quite hit. I mean, I think that if Joe Casey's run on Uncanny had lasted longer and he had used Chamber for a longer period of time, that Paige might have popped up in that book as like a supporting character and they might have gotten together or whatever, but it just pivoted to Chuck Austin and that did not happen. <laughs> so, you know, that's my hot take. Well, Karen, is there anything else you would like to say about Paige before we start to wrap? Um, oh yeah. We didn't even talk about that uh, time she was in shield, which oh, you know, yeah. you don't really need to worry about. No, Don't worry like, about it. That was weird. I do like how Baklo was just kind of like, yeah, she just like turns into a rock monster most of the time. <laughs> you know, just like, like sure, you do. Why not? But yeah, that's a really weird series. Don't need to worry about it. Um, I do. I am really happy that Zoe was the person who did Cannonball because it just like feels fitting. You know, we write about Eternals together for mm-hmm. Comics XF and just like we've been like, you know, friends for the however long we've been on x twitter and uh just nice it feels fitting to me that she is the uh go-getter like sam guthrie type who became in the x-men and succeeded and has led teams and is like very vocal (laughs) and like in the forefront and i'm like more of the husk page even though i am older and still i feel like the little sister 
So great casting, Connor. <laughs> I try. Listen, I'm very particular about who does. I mean, that's why I always ask people, like, give me five or six characters, because a lot of characters I have someone in mind. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine anyone who I would have invited on to talk about Husk besides you, probably. Like, I, who else is a Husk? stand that i'm like super aware of i couldn't feel like you've already had those people on this right and that you talk about someone else yeah Yeah. so you know it's always fun to dig in deep on a character that i have like you know not a ton of feelings about with someone who does that's part of the joy of this show well why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and plug anything you want to plug you do great critical work you are a very talented artist take it away tell them about all your stuff so yeah i'm on twitter at karen underscore x-men fan and i like drawing x-men i draw commissions for you dm me if you'd like me to draw you something um i write Sometimes for Comic Book Herald, I'm going to be writing about the Hellfire Gala collection coming up. I actually wrote a piece for Comfort Food Comics about my top 10 favorite husk stories. So check that out. <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah. I'll put that in the uh, in the Twitter. Yes. I'm currently working on a primer for Comics XF for the work of uh, Chris Bacalo, who is one of my all-time favorites, and I'm co-doing that with uh, Adam Rick, and I'm not sure when that will see the light of day, but it's coming. It's been a joy. I have to ask, because I always said Bacalo, and then I was told it was Bacalo, and now I'm not sure. You have me in a panic, because I've now said it like 50 times on this podcast. I sympathize and empathize with that position i feel like and i could be getting it wrong but i have listened to interviews where he introduces himself as bacalo well shit or i could be wrong i could be misremembering it i'm gonna do some research now chris if you're listening this is now the third or fourth grade directly addressed if you're listening and i've been mispronouncing your name i apologize actually you know what i think i have been getting wrong i think he does say bachalo Pachalo. Yeah, that's it. So, oh, well, okay. Culpa. Well, then neither of us are right because <laughs> I'm saying Bachalo because I'm a fucking New Yorker. I grew up you. saying Bachalo. So, yeah. Well, in any case, talented guy. I love you, Chris. You're the best. <laughs> I love the primer program at Comics XF, actually. I think it's a really clever little. Yeah, it's fun. Feature. I got to write the one for Eternals, which is kind of like it's weird. I love the X Men so much, but I mostly write about Eternals for them because well, who else like, is going to write about would? the fucking Eternals? <laughs> and I have so many things to say. If the movie is any of good, I'm going to be very happy. I've become known as the Zaladane guy. Like, who am I to throw fucking stones? You know what? Like, I, you know, love the Eternals as much as you want. <laughs> I support you finding your bliss. You have your Zaladane. I'll have my Lupo. Exactly. Lupo <laughs> from the Savage Land movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That issue 250. Just like all those close-ups of Havoc and just like this angry looking <laughs> blue bear behind him. Yeah. So many panels like, who is I this? Know. If you get a chance to listen to the Patreon bonus episode I did about Zaladane, I actually go through all 12 of her appearances. I start out kind of like just describing them and then sort of midway through it kind of just like becomes a radio drama that I do by myself (laughs) where I'm doing all the voices. Lupo obviously factors into that issue. I'm particularly proud though of my amphibious voice. Mm. It's sort of like this. (laughs) Zanadine. Zanadine, my queen. Oh no. You know, like that was sort of the the savage land mutates. Frogman sound like. I think maybe (laughs) like like that. 
like this. Zaladin, my queen. That sounds like Toad from Pride of the X. I know. My favorite part of that issue is actually when Brainchild, just in case you didn't get the Zaladane, Zaladane thing, refers right. to Lorna as Lorna Dane. One word. Ah, Lorna Dane, our foe. It's like, okay, we get it. Love you, Chris Fairmont. Love you so much. Thank you so much for being my guest. This has been a ton of fun. Yeah, I so enjoyed much, letting down my skin barriers. You shed your you. skin. I, yeah, bit. I'm like, I'm, I've run out of <laughs> puns. But you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus a link to the Cerebro Fan Discord, the Cerebro Merch Store, and the Patreon at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier, you will receive two bonus episodes each month. There's a bunch in the can right now that I'm editing and they're really super fun and I'm excited about it. Uh, I fell behind schedule a little bit in June, but we are catching up and I can't wait to share some of this really stupid content with all of you. But one that's not stupid at all is literally tomorrow, Sarah Century and I are recording uh, our Victoria Montesi episode, which I'm really hyped about. So stay tuned for that. You can send your questions to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. I am going to be recording the Gambit episode before you hear this. So it's too late to send in your Gambit questions. But I still have the floor open right now for questions about Jubilee and Cable. So if you have questions about those characters, please feel free to send them in. There are like 60 in the inbox right now. So I don't know how many. I'm excited. Spencer Ackerman's coming back for episode 50 to do yeah, Xavier. It's going to be fun. I'm jazzed about it. I think it's going to be fun. And we're it's going to land like right, you know, it's going to be Inferno. the one year anniversary and Inferno's coming. Yeah, so yeah. I'm psyched. As always, thank you all for listening. I'm super blessed to have amassed a listenership that is so thoughtful and kind Thank you all for joining the conversation yesterday when we all flipped the fuck out about Jonathan Hickman, but only bringing good vibes. It actually was astonishing in the Discord how chill everything was. <laughs> like, we were all like, everybody's like, I'm not looking at Twitter right now. I was like, don't, don't yeah. look. Just stay in here where it's safe. I will protect you. I don't know what it is about my algorithm, but I am thankfully spared from a lot of it. Which doesn't make it any better, but. I wouldn't see it except that at this point, the podcast account has, yeah, like a reach. So people like will quote tweet it and like tell Mm -hmm. me they don't like what I'm like, shut up. Like (laughs) if you insult something I just said I enjoy, you're getting muted or blocked, frankly. I don't have time for that. So, you know, learn to behave on Sage's Internet. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. We're coming up on the one year anniversary of the pod and I can't believe it. It's been a whirlwind. So. I appreciate you all. I've said that like 50 times now, so I'm just going to sign off. Until next time, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.